0: Corlys of House Valerian, lord of the tides and master of Driftmark, renowned in song and story as the Sea Snake, and surely one of the most extraordinary figures of the age. A noble house with a storied Valerian lineage, the Valerians had come to Westeros even before the Targaryens, if their family histories can be believed, settling in the gullet on the low-lying and fertile island of Driftmark, so named for the driftwood that the tides brought daily to its shores, rather than its stony, smoking neighbor, Dragonstone. Though never dragon riders, the Valyrians had for centuries remained the oldest and closest allies of the Targaryens. Their sea was their element, or the sea was their element, not the sky.
1: No, During it's their sea. It's
0: their sea. Yeah, it kind of was their sea. <laughs> During the conquest, it was Valyrian ships that carried Aegon's soldiers across Blackwater Bay, and then later formed the greater part of the royal fleet. So yeah, it was their sea. Throughout the first century of Targaryen rule, so many lords of the tide served on the Small Council as Master of Ships that the office was widely seen as almost hereditary. Yet even with such forebears, Corlys Valerian was a man apart—a man as brilliant as he was restless, as adventurous as he was ambitious. It was traditional for the sons of the Seahorse, the sigil of House Valerian, to be given a taste of a seafarer's life when young, but no Valerian before or since ever took to shipboard life as eagerly as the boy who would become the Seasnake.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Uh, Super chat right off the bat from Tommy Pappas Thanks Tommy, Uh, no question attached But thanks for the support
1: We'll be seeing him in about three weeks That's
0: right, seeing him at Ice and Fire Con And a lot of you other fine people will be seeing there as well And we're excited for that Now the Seeksteak is really popular Uh, Fire and Blood is key to that But the world of Ice and Fire Is where we got our early introduction to him And it's frankly where we get more of the information about the places he traveled to so the fire and blood gives more information about him but world of ice and fire gives more information about the places he's been and that is our focus so this is kind of a split fire and blood world of ice and fire episode i guess you could say but it's inspired by the publication of fire and blood so it's under that title Uh, he does appear in the in the princess and the queen and the rogue prince as well because he's a big player in the dance of the dragons Speaking of the Dance of the Dragons, if we hadn't uh, had to move this stream to this week, if we had finished it last week, if the internet had cooperated, mm-hmm. we would probably be recording our Dance of the Dragons collab with Radio Astros right now. Mm-hmm. But instead, that'll start tomorrow. So not a big difference. But that is our way of saying that the first episode in that series has been written, and it is well where we will cover the latter half of the Sea Snake's life, whereas this is going to be focused on his early life and his voyages which is uh, very, very different than his life after his voyages, which contained all the politics and war. We're going to also talk about um, his uh, involvement in the Hour of the Wolf and the Regency and all that. Not just the war, but the aftermath. That'll be a big part of our dance coverage as well. So, uh, welcome back, Shea. Good to see you. Thank you. <laughs> and we have our also returning guest who was here last week and was part of our... <laughs> False start. So welcome back to hopefully a complete stream this time, uh, at least free of, of uh, drops and such. LML, welcome back, buddy.
2: Well, I've thrown at least 12 people into the sea after cutting their throats, so hopefully the storm god is appeased, or <laughs> well, the drown god, or whatever gods uh, were disturbing us. But no, I am coming with my uh, my Blackwater Bay t-shirt. Uh, which nice. which does have a kind of <laughs> sea dragon. It's a Chinese dragon. This is the Chinese New Year uh, Warriors shirt here. So this is on theme as oh, I could get cool. for you guys. But thanks for having me back. Looks like we've got a strong start today. No shaky stream. No uh, intermittent stream. Yeah. You know, uh, <laughs> sorry <laughs> I have to
1: point out something that I never noticed despite streaming with LML for a long time that he stands during his
0: streams-hmm that's right I only know this the from being know. there and being on one of his streams at his house and you did know, you he stand
1: was a... I
0: believe I sat on a stool oh, I don't think okay. I. it was a really short episode it was only like a five minute update thing so or uh, no was it, it was
2: an ago? hour I guess it was an hour, hour but that's short it was an hour yeah. okay
1: I think you're a secret mormont <laughs>
2: <laughs> no I'm a big uh Big fan of the standing desk. Um, I, when I sit, I hunch, and about half an hour, my shoulders hurt, so uh, I've got into the standing desk thing, and that's how I roll, so thanks, everybody, for cool. joining on the stream. I see the chat's already active, and everybody's uh was fired up last week, and... You know, thanks for bearing with us. We did what we could, but it's fun to be back.
0: <laughs> That's right.
1: <laughs> definitely,
0: definitely. As far as our shirts go, is rocking Broad City.
1: Yeah, Pod City. Pod City, City really. Well, mashup. they had their series finale last week. That's also, right. it's a nice color that fits with House Valerian.
0: And I've got Miskatonic University. I didn't have a Valerian shirt. I don't own any Seahorse shirts, but a lot of the places the Sea Snake went to are Lovecraft inspired, and Miskatonic University is straight from Lovecraft, so... If you didn't get the reference, well, now you do.
1: We've also got another super chat from Dark Mother for 666. Big surprise there. (laughs) That's a popular number these days. Love me some mythical astronomy. That's right.
0: So do we all. So do we all. Okay. Well, our our other guest who isn't present in person, but whose presence in this episode is going to be large is uh our artist friend draftergy who created a lot of art just for this episode and a lot of these pieces are going to be available for sale
1: yeah like this one he did of corlys and rainies along with maylis the red queen of course um and a little bit about draftergy you might have seen him on twitter or something like that uh he does concept and fantasy illustration based out of la He does some illustration work part time, and um, lately he's been switching to this cool water-based media and airbrush acrylics. Which later on in the episode we'll have a process video for you of that, which is which is very cool. And he originally entered the fandom because of the show, but the thing that I think is particularly cool about him is that. He's very into the book lore and tries to do these illustrations according to the book descriptions, and you can really see there's a unique quality to it, and he does a lot of references and stuff like that. He's got 3D models and uh, et cetera. Yeah. So we reached out to him for this episode because it's just this very real and evocative style as you can see here on the screen and so you can find him on Twitter at drafturgy that's d r a f t U R G Y, and also on Instagram at Drafter G, and he's going to have links set up on his website for prints for sale, so you can get this awesome Cortese and Rainey's print, and yeah. you'll see some very cool pieces throughout the rest of the episode. Yeah,
0: please, so please check his website out, support his work. We love to support um, artists in this community, and we uh, hope you all decide to support him as well. And yes, I think you're going to love what we've got uh, of his art in this episode. We also have, because we're going to so many cool places that the Sea Snake went to, we are also going to have a lot of Michael Klarfeld map shots. So with that in mind, we I very frequently point out to our podcast-only listeners that there are ways to see these images. One of them is to use the Acast podcast player. It's free. There's no ads or anything. We don't get any money from it. It's just a good thing to have because it allows you to see these images in the audio podcast you can scroll through them. You can see them. They're just nice, nicely presented. So it's a good way to get some images on your phone. Uh, but also, we're going to post these in um, a couple places online as well. Some links and the uh, the map shots as well. So lots of ways to see these, see this art. And of course, you can always check out this video uh, if you're <laughs> listening afterwards. If you're not catching the live stream, so lots of ways to keep up with that. Let's give some uh, quick shout outs to uh, people who make the show possible, and then we'll get started. We have uh, new art to feature as well uh, coming for our dragon, uh, Tolerius, but we have new art today for Atroxus, who is, of course, the r- dragon of Robert the Fourth of House Ardeacor, who is Burn King of Blazewater Bay. And this is the new art a black dragon with bioluminescent spots like smoldering embers and a banded blue tail. You know, I've forgotten which artist is that?
1: Azani. Azani, very cool. Bottom corner.
0: That's right. Yeah, it does say that, doesn't it? Yeah, Azani has done other dragon art for us as well. So the style is becoming rapidly familiar to uh, History of Westeros fans if they weren't already. And of course, we also have Talenis the Talon, King of Gagasos, rider of Telerius, a Red Dragon with scales, horns, and talons of midnight black. New art on the way for him shortly as well. Can't wait to debut that.
2: Mm-hmm. I was just real quick. I was going to say the blue and black one is like a shade of the evening dragon a little bit.
1: Yeah, yeah it's really cool, I was huh? Trying to like <laughs> that. Yeah, I was. I, I'm still thinking of the expanse. I'm like, it's a proto molecule dragon. <laughs> yeah,
2: it's kind of like a white dragon. <laughs> I have a weird dragon amongst my patrons. So. Oh, oh, that's cool. cool. It's Melanie Lot Seven. Oh,
0: right on. And also, of course, a shout out to some a man who does not fear dragons of any size, Jeff Gnarly the Long Snapper, History of Westeros' first sword. All right, that is it for the announcements. Let's get right to it. Um, we did some uh, history of House Valerian in the Oak and Fist episode, so we're not going to go. We're not going to retread that. But there are a few things we didn't talk about that bear mention here that are a little more relevant to Corlys than they were to Allen. And that is this whole bit that was touched on in the opening quote about how the Master of Ships uh, office is almost hereditary. Look at how it breaks down. That's almost an understatement of the early days of, of Master Ships. The first Master Ships was Damon, uh, Damon Valarian, followed by Ethan, who was the son of Damon, followed by Damon, who was the <laughs> son of Athan. And he was promoted to hand. And so Manfred Redwine became Master of Ships. Uh, after Damon was promoted to hand, and then we get Sea Snake, and here's another piece of uh, another art, another piece of art from Drafter G. You got the 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 black and white and the color. It's very cool. I love the uh, the horizon back there. He looks like a proper sailor. A little bit of a Captain Morgan feel there. <laughs> <laughs> So, Seasnake himself is, is Master Ships, followed by Oaken Fist for Dare on the First. Well, not followed by Oaken Fist. There's maybe some in between that we're not clear on, but I believe that Oaken Fist may have been next. And then in between all that, we have nothing. We don't know who the Master Ships were from all the way from Dare on the First all the way to Ares the Second. So, from about 140 ish, 150 ish, all the way to 260 something, we don't know who the, uh, the Masters of Ships were. So, there could have been more. Valerians in there for all we know. But all we know is the last one for the Targaryens was also a Valerian. Uh he was a real crappy guy though. This Lucerius Valerian was like agreeing with Ares on everything. He's like, "Yeah, you want to burn people? Yeah, let's do that. You want to cut people's heads off for very minor things? Yeah, do it. Do it." So, <laughs> eh. <laughs> he's uh not um not someone that I think Corlys Valerian our subject today would be proud of. Uh, early in his life, he was born in um 53 IC, which is one year before Elissa Farman ran off with the dragon. You're
1: saying early in his life he was born.
0: (laughs) That's usually when people are born, right? (laughs) Yeah. People are usually not born late in their lives. In fact, when they are born late in lives, it's it's, it's really quite a story. It's very really noticeable. So he's normal that he was born at age zero. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Nothing unusual at that. Uh, no strange Targaryen birth defects or anything like that, even though his name is the Sea Snake. Uh, so he would have been about two when the Sun Chaser was completed and about three when her voyage to the West began. So he... Would have grown up hearing about her, you know, in in mariner circles. I would have to imagine she was just
1: a legend.
0: A le- yeah, like <laughs> things people would talk about her a lot. And um, this is also one year before Damon, as in the Damon who became master of ships and then hand uh, retired. Uh, also one year before Jocelyn Baratheon was born. And despite Jocelyn Baratheon being younger, she would eventually be his mother in law, <laughs> <laughs> and his cousin because you know that's how these upper nobility things work out.
1: We need Elena to describe all this for us, I think. <laughs> yeah.
0: <sighs> what do you think about that, LML? What do you think it would be like to be growing up as like a mariner with with this incredible figure who had just lived in the prior generation plus you come from this tradition of like amazing mariners. It must have been must have been kind of a great environment for him.
2: Well, I thought you were going to ask me about coming from a family where the Family tree goes sort of backwards and up and crosswise. but
0: <laughs> Well, you can mention that, too. That's a great topic as well. Yeah, I wouldn't know anything about
2: that. Um, <laughs> I do come from a long line of gardeners myself, though. Both my father and grandfather are oh, gardeners. And, uh, really?
1: I was, of okay. course,
2: for a time, a gardener. Um, so <laughs> it wasn't really a lot of pressure, though, on my shoulders Uh wasn't quite that much greatness uh, compared to the the sea snake but yeah you know that kind of pressure can either crush somebody or can you know propel you to great heights and so obviously our young sea snake was determined to i mean right from a young age he was pushing the envelope constantly so he's just one of those people that was constantly looking for new horizons looking to sail farther and you know longer and all that stuff so that's that's just him
0: that's a really good point about the pressure of, of past generations. It's it's a thing that people can either wilt under or really rise to. And for these nobles, it's it's usually it's like a meat grinder. They 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 have to measure up, or they just you know it's it's, it's a whole other thing. And he clearly, like you said, is clearly in the mold of this. Was a good thing for him. He was inspired, and uh, he followed in his family's footsteps, um, and then and not only followed in his footsteps, but just set new. Uh, standards for a lot of this. He's named for Coralise Valerian, the first Lord Commander of the Kingsguard. So talk about a name that carries weight. There were probably some Coralises before that who were also a big deal. It seems like maybe Coralise was maybe a common house name, although we don't know of any Coralises after him, but of course we don't necessarily have a lot of Valerian history to go by.
1: yeah got to
0: figure there'd be more Corleys, right? You would like, think.
1: But there's other one. You would think there'd be more Alessands in the Targaryen. You know, there's a million names like that that you might think. Good point. But, you know, <laughs> they did it so well that no one was willing to. Yeah, they're just like, no one is worthy of this <laughs> name.
0: We're retiring it, like retiring, yeah, a, a, retiring number, a jersey it, exactly. number for a, a sports team. <laughs> his father, we don't know what his father's name was, but we have it narrowed down to three. It was either Corwin, Victor, or Jorgen, which are kind of strange names to me. Victor and Jorgen don't really seem like... Velaryon names to me. and Corwin's pretty similar to Corlise. It me?
2: wouldn't be. What about a core full instead of Corlex? <laughs> <laughs> nice.
0: Well, Corlise, Sorry. or it could be like cor Mir or Cor-Pentos. I apologize, core everyone. I apologize. <laughs> you got me started. Yeah. You got me started on that. <laughs> uh, the eldest of those three, whichever of those three was the eldest. We don't know which it was, but that one was Corlise's father. Because we know that Corlis was the son of... Damon's his grandfather Damon's eldest I'm son. I'm gonna
1: guess his father was Corwin just it just makes more sense to me Yeah,
0: I kind of lean that way too. I also <laughs> like that name the best Jorgen's kind of a strange It's a strange name. It's like Germanic which is kind of a strange name for a Valerian to have and and Victor is just That's just not Westerosi until this book. There are two victors in this book I don't think there was a victor before fire and blood anyway so one of those three died in to the shivers the second of those three, so his uh, his uncle. And then the other two, meaning his father and the other uncle, all died before Damon. So they all, so Damon, grandfather Damon outlasted all three of his sons, which is how the title passed straight to Corlys. Um, Damon sounds like a pretty impressive guy. He lived to be like 88, which is older than the Sea Snake, who lived a long time. And, uh, oh, Nina Friel says there's a the Victor Tyrell. Yes. I guess I did miss a Victor. Okay, well, my bad, my bad. No, Good catch. Nina's excellent at catching my mistakes.
1: Some other Vic names.
0: <laughs> Vic name, Victoria. yeah, Victoria. Victorian, yeah. It's yeah, yeah. a little similar, at least. Um, and uh, he also had at least three of his four aunts had died um, before he inherited as well. So it's possible his father died young as well. Uh, which all we know is that it wasn't from the shivers. Uh, he may have also been in Pentos, Corlys himself, because Corlys was uh, in Pentos when the shivers happened. Because he did take a voyage there when he was really young. So he may have been away from it when all that happened. That's just kind of interesting. This is Because if you think back also, the Shivers was blamed on the Pentashi. This is when Rigo Draz was murdered in the streets for being a Pentashi. And um, so this is kind of, you wonder if what people were saying in Pentas about Westeros blaming Pentas and all that. And if Sea Snake was on the other side of that. But he was very young for all this. Do you have any thoughts on that, LML? It's kind of a... Kind of an under-the-radar under, under the radar incident, the, uh, the his location during uh, this disease.
2: Uh, no, it just seems like Martin is sort of setting things up for there to be a little bit of a power vacuum for him to step into. That, that's what I'm observing.
0: That makes a lot of sense, yeah, because he does – you're right. He takes over after his voyages when, after all, it doesn't seem like he would be – seems like he would have been pretty far down the line of succession even though he was in the direct line. Uh, because his grandfather lived so long. And the, the fact that his grandfather lived so long is why he was able to go on all these voyages. And like you said, then once he's done with all the voyages, the, things kind of cleared out for him, and he's basically just steps into his lordship. Yeah, and I think that's so, what uh, makes
2: him an interesting character is because he's not just uh, a Magellan you know, type of explorer. He's also actually turns to politics and he doesn't just explore but brings great wealth back to his house as we'll discuss and makes his house a a great power and then turns to politics and ages gracefully and remains a player until he's very old so it's just a lot of phases in his life so much so that you can't even do it all in one live stream so he's a very dynamic (laughs) figure.
0: It's true. This always happens when we have guys, characters, not guys, guys or girls yes. that, live, that live to be more than 40 or 50. It's like, up. Oh, that's yeah, two episodes. Yeah, Nymeria. <laughs> yeah, Nymeria is three. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, speaking of Nymeria, we have our episode voting in progress right now. We're about to wrap it up. So if you are a $12 or more patron, make sure you get your vote in. Looks like uh, Lomas Longstrider going to win. Speaking All these of these
1: adventurers, uh, we did Alyssa Farman and Oakenfist <laughs>
0: The explorers and sea are very Snake popular.
1: And Nymeria.
0: Yeah, really, uh, really, we see where the uh, how well the world building type episodes do. <laughs> <laughs> We're certainly big fans of them. Mm. Um, so we know that Lord Damon, Grandpa Damon, died uh, when. He was uh, 88, like I said, but we don't know when he was 88. He, it was sometime between the years 77 and 90, A kind of a wide range. So, yeah, so this is, like I said, he's free to do all this exploring because his grandpa is such a strong ruler and held the, you know, this, the powerful house in line for so long. And, you know, they're such a well-regarded house, so powerful at this time. It's easy to, to forget, compare what they are now to what they were then, which is back, back, right now, they're not that powerful at all. They're still around, they're with Stannis. But the sea snake took them from one of the most powerful houses in Westeros to the most powerful house in Westeros uh, in just because of his exploring a large part, which is so cool. Like he just got so much wealth from exploring, which is very different than what we see from some of these other explorers who didn't necessarily come back with a lot of wealth. Some of them did. Euron did, Oakenfist sorta of did. But Alyssa Farman, well, she didn't come back. <laughs> and uh Lomas Longstrider. He was a scribe. You know, he, he, didn't ha- he wasn't a noble that had all this means to buy a bunch of goods and bring them back and make a lot of profit from them. So that's another thing we're going to talk about during this is, is Corley's had some advantages. Um, anyway, so, but, and part of that leads to him being able to go farther. This is one of the reasons he's able to go to all these other places is because he comes from this powerful house. Um, he has the means to do it. That's a big part of it. That's something that gets lost in the shuffle uh, Elissa Farman came from a minor house. She's a noble, but she was a fugitive <laughs> when she ran off. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Oakenfist was also from the same house, but he was bastard born, which and and he didn't quite have the same wealth. So a lot of different stuff there. A lot of um, a lot of different factors that that make mm-hmm. all this uh, interesting. But even with all that, Seasnake, he didn't. Uh, he was no slacker despite mm-hmm. his advantages. He went farther than Lomas did. Uh, we think he went farther than Euron did. We we think.
1: You know, I want to mention, we touched on it in our, you know, stream that never was last week, <laughs> a I good guess. Title for it. Yeah. <laughs> um, which was the mention of there being songs written about Coralise. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I, I really would like to challenge someone to write a sea snake, a snee snake.
0: <laughs> yeah, song. LML, you up for writing some sea snake songs? Or yeah, You, you know 50. that I am.
1: <laughs> that's what we need that's cool
0: yeah that is a good that was a good catch that it says he's a, 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 a figure of song and story like yeah what songs because we were yeah. talking about how Bloodraven arrived on the wall it was probably maybe the only person who had a song written about him before he got to the wall you know if you count Danny Flint that was after the fact but uh, the not a, not a very good song in the ocean the
2: summer ocean the sea <laughs> snake sleeps tonight <laughs> yep just like that yeah. see it just that comes out on demand <laughs> Yeah, okay. uh, but no, seriously, like you were saying, when you compare him to Euron, um, Euron takes a long voyage, you know, farther than anyone has gone in a long time. Comes back with wealth, and he uses it to try to uh, take power. He he does it a little differently because he's trying to do it really fast. Whereas Corlys Valerion, you know, gradually built up his wealth, and then on his last voyage to Carth. You know, as we'll talk about, he took home a big haul and set himself up, and then sort of settled down to being a politician. But it's interesting how, um, you know, if you can either just be an explorer or you can sort of use those riches to to parlay that into grabbing power. And Euron does it in a slightly different fashion.
0: That's very true. It's interesting to compare Euron to the Sea Snake in that way. I didn't have great, you know, we didn't have like great. Sea Snake parallels, we do have one in this episode provided to a, us by a friend, but uh, there might be, if we really dig into Sea Snake Euron, obviously the personalities are pretty different, but there's probably a, a lot more there than we may have, uh, may, may have realized at first because of that. You know, Using this the exploration to take power, that's a really uh, pretty poignant one right there. The depth of their exploration is really quite substantial. Super chat from Sean Schilling. Do we think the sea snake ever came across a kraken? How would they fight such a beast? It seems likely they, ha- they would have come across a kraken a, a few times, if not more. Or um, given the vast amount of exploring he did, how do you fight such a thing? You don't. I don't think you just escape you hopefully just get away you you, if you're if if there's like five
2: ships you hope it grabs one of the other ones (laughs) well let's put it this way we don't we don't ever hear about him encountering a kraken so if they did it didn't pull down any of the main ships or you know leave a big enough impression but i think encounters with krakens are probably fairly rare you know yes
0: i agree they're probably pretty rare we did hear now when you mentioned his voyage to karth he did uh, go there in one ship, buy 20 more ships once he was there, fill them all up and go back, which is a perfect example of how, who else could do that? You need an insane amount of wealth to do that, <laughs> to buy 20 ships and then fill it up with trade goods. Whoa. But it's said that four, uh, six of those ships didn't make it back. So, you know, it's more likely that storms or something took them out. But maybe a kraken was responsible for one or two of those six missing ones.
1: I put a related comment there for you, Aziz, that I just thought was funny.
0: You did? Oh, okay. Yes, from Thomas Pappas. It says... Or He says, I was watching a documentary on early sea travel and turns out a lot of krakens, quote unquote, were actually just whale penises sticking out of the water that appear like tentacles. I saw that same article and I laughed out loud. No.
1: I don't know. It makes me
0: laugh. You got to look, man. Whale penises sticking out of the water. No, I don't have to look
2: at whale penises at all. I can (laughs) leave them alone in the privacy of their own hindquarters.
0: (laughs) Well said. Well said. Um, So... Maybe the sea snake encountered some whale penis of his own.
2: <laughs> yeah. <maybe. laughs> Boy.
0: How do seahorses react to that? That yeah. didn't take long.
2: We're not even half an hour into this. <laughs> I haven't even made sea snake jokes yet, and you're talking about whale penis. <laughs> it's cool. It's cool.
0: <laughs> we got to get started. We got to get it going quickly, or, you know, it'll take too long. So. <clears throat>
1: That's what she said?
0: <laughs> that is what she said. That's what she, she being a. A female whale, <laughs> a fee whale—is that what
2: they're
0: mm. called? Um, okay, so early voyaging for him—he he, in between his great voyages and that first voyage to Pentos that we mentioned when he was six, when the shivers was was raging—it says thereafter he made such voyages every year. So he was sailing like a well, like a sailor. Uh, and it says not here's a quote: not nor did he travel as a passenger. He climbed masts. Tied knots, scrubbed decks, pulled oars, caulked leaks, raised and lowered sails, manned the crow's nest, learned to navigate and steer. His captain said they had never seen such a natural sailor. At age 16, he became a captain himself, taking a fishing boat called the Cod Queen from Driftmark to Dragonstone and back, circa 70 AC. This sounds a lot like what was said about Alyssa Farman, right? Like, just took to it naturally. She was climbing the ropes, doing I mean, it's almost identical. So it, it just goes to show that... He was just took to it like a like it was... No matter how
1: much you work at it, you need that natural talent.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you need that natural talent. You need to be born into a seafaring house with lots of money. Yeah,
1: lots of money, yes. <laughs>
2: that's the best way to become a sailor. <gasps> yeah,
1: that's why Leon Stark's such a good well, I, horse I, on woman. a serious note,
2: I do like how George incorporates this idea that when somebody is in the right situation where they can follow their passion, that's when they really, really excel. And you see yeah, both yeah. people that are like stuck in places that aren't conducive for them, and you see people in a good situation. And the sea snake is one of those examples of like he found his way early to his calling and, and excelled because of that.
0: Yeah, just kind of those like a when you hear stories about that in real life about people that are kind of born into something they love, it's just it kind of makes you feel good. <laughs> it's like it's like one of those feel good stories. Like yeah, there is some good in the world, that kind of thing. Um, so around this time, the the Velaryons, of course, like we said, were still kind of the number one house. They weren't necessarily always number one in in wealth, although they were, as we said, after the Sea Snake got done. But they were pretty much always number one in influence because of their long connection to the Targaryens and their literal proximity to the Targaryens physically, uh, let alone all the. Previous marriages and all that. But the Baratheons had been very much moving up the ladder. Uh, obviously, descending from Oris Baratheon, who was a Targaryen bastard, is a, is a big part of that closeness. But the but the Baratheons were not just marrying into the Targaryens. They were marrying into the Valerians. It was kind of like this whole thing we're talking about where they're all just intermarrying each other. Well... Prince Aemon, who was the heir to Jaehaerys and Al-San for a while, married Jocelyn Baratheon, who is the daughter of Alyssa Velaryon and Rogar Baratheon. Alyssa was the sister to Coralise's grandpa Daemon. <laughs> if that made sense, I hope it did. So, four years later, uh, he, there would be Rhaenys, uh, Coralise's future wife, who would be born. So, um, that's the queen who never was. And here is more art from mm-hmm. Drafter G.
1: Yeah, of her along with Maylis, her dragon.
0: Yeah, Maylis, the Red Queen. So I love
1: those that costuming and armor and all that. Very powerful. The tunic that she's wearing in general. I like the clothing, the costuming design on these.
0: Yeah, it's like he, she was the queen who never was, but her dragon was the Red Queen, so
1: yeah. <laughs> one of them <laughs> got a crown. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> so other trips he made around this time were mentioned, and these are not Any of his big nine voyages, the famous nine voyages he took. So he took voyages that were pretty substantial, that didn't count among his famous nine ones. Uh, He took a trip to the west that included Old Town, Lannisport, and Lordsport, which I believe we have a map shot for. Mm
1: -hmm, And
0: uh, Lordsport, it's kind of interesting to hear someone going to Lordsport.
1: You can see on the map the three locations... Right there. And then you can see from Michael Clarfeld's Iron Islands map, Lord's Port.
0: Yeah, very cool. I love that Iron Islands map that Clarfeld did. It's so good. You get all the sigils there and everything. I like the sigils showing you where the houses are to line up with their graphics. It's very cool. Dude, we
1: really need to get it put up behind us. We
0: do. Yes, we do. <laughs> and uh, you don't hear about that a lot. Of course, it's implied that there's a lot of trade with the Iron Islands, but it, it's you usually don't hear about it this specifically. So I think that's interesting. What do you do? You have any thoughts on some of these trading voyages, LML, or um, any other thoughts on on uh, maybe the art or any of the stuff that we just talked about?
2: Well, I do always love a good Michael Clarfeld map, that's for sure. I was I was definitely I was just zoning out on the uh, Iron Islands one. I do love how he's got all the sigils in there. Um, no, I just mostly just meta thoughts on the on the general like we already said he's starting young he's he's pushing the boundaries early on and right away you can see their trade voyages so his his sailing has always been linked to uh you know an eye towards building wealth and establishing his house so
0: that's a great point yeah it's it's a, it's a recurring theme with his voyages is making money he wants to explore he wants to see new things but he also wants to make a profit and You know, it takes you can there's that old adage, it takes money to make money and the rich get richer. Well, he's a very much a a case study in that he took his family's wealth and multiplied it by massive amounts. Um, So in
2: in other words, phase one, sell the seven seas, (laughs) phase two, phase three, profits.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's a very good rendition of the underpants gnomes. And uh, yeah, so it really, he, he had an eye for gold and he knew what to do and he was very much ambitious and hardworking to make that happen. It didn't seem to have any hangups on different places to go, didn't seem to have any fear on exploring new places. As we'll see, he's going to go to progressively more and more unexplored places uh, looking for presumably more opportunities for wealth, but also just... Yeah, I mean, part of opening up these places, it's like you're opening up new markets. It's not just one, necessarily one voyage. It's You may establish trade routes and permanent, semi-permanent deals with some of these places that would build recurring wealth instead of just a big score. We have another trip that he took a little bit more ambitious. This is, I guess, his first time outside of Westeros, besides going to Pentos. Uh, so he goes to Lys, Tyrosh, Pentos again, and Mir. Uh, which we have another map shot for, which I guess is already on screen. And you can yes, see that all the def- destinations circled. It makes sense to kind of hit all those targets along the way. And all those kind of-
1: targets. <laughs>
0: and you kind of wonder, I guess, at least, uh, I'm not sure what the trade goods at least are. Mir has a lot of these fine glass Women.
1: <laughs> Women, yeah,
0: it is one of them. I don't- yeah. We don't know that he dealt in, in, in slaves, but yeah. he may have. Uh, it's certainly possible.
1: I mean yeah. he could be doing something very different, which is bringing women for the brothels back there like, yeah. hey, you'll be free technically and that's true but you
0: wonder about that exotic lawyer. women like different looking women or whatever that's yeah. uh people would know. definitely pay for that uh and then yeah, Tyrosh has its dyes and Mir has its crossbows and and its glass um mirish glasses Pentos really, like, has fancy. its pens
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> nice. So there's a lot of a lot of possibilities there. Let's move on to the next section we're calling Bolder and Smarter.
2: Lord Corliss was an ambitious man. During his nine voyages on the sea snake, he was forever wanting to press onward to go where none had gone before and see what lay beyond the maps. Though he had accomplished much and more in life, he was seldom satisfied, the men who knew him best would say.
0: Hmm. That does paint an interesting picture, a kind of guy who success doesn't make him rest on his laurels it's always like well success just means i could have even more success you know <laughs> he's always just uh, very type a i guess you could say and uh i like how there's seems to be a, a little bit of a star War- star trek nod there to go where none had gone before <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah, slay oh, beyond totally. maps indeed We had spoken during the Alyssa Farman episode, the Sun Chaser episode, of how he could have learned from Alyssa's ship design and read some of the same books she did. But he had access to a lot of things she didn't. And this is where we get into his his noble heritage, giving him significant legs up over other explorers. For one thing, he had four ships that he sailed kind of famously uh, throughout his life, whereas, which is not something most people can do because ships are super expensive, <laughs> especially the kind that you want to take on dangerous voyages to dangerous places. We heard about that ship he called the Cod Queen, which is kind of a funny name. <laughs> and uh, the Summer Maid was his next one. They kind of get progressively more like dangerous sounding. Then the yeah. Ice Wolf. <laughs> and then the Sea Snake is like, oh, yeah. So. He gets his name from the sea snake. It's interesting to point out he wasn't called the sea snake early in life. It was – the nickname came from this ship. So it's kind of funny. He gave this ship a name and people started calling him that, which is – I wonder how that happened. <laughs> That's a little strange, really. Um, so, yeah, let's, let's, let's really why dive in. Why did
1: he name it the Ice Wolf? What's so, that? Is there any particular reason he named it the Ice Wolf? Yeah,
0: he tried to use it to explore
1: yeah, okay. the so just, the, ice, the, icy, the icy areas north that. of – yeah. it just seems like such a – Arrogant kind of hubristic thing. I'm like, you're no wolf. <laughs> People aren't
2: wolves.
0: There's actually a cool. That's part of one of the cool parallels uh, we found. Um, we'll get to that shortly. It's kind of neat. The the Ice Wolf has some other symbolic meaning. What I want to think about. This is where my imagination really runs wild. He's got all these books. He's got all. He's got access to the Valyrian Library. He's got. He's probably got Targaryen books as well. And if he's sitting here going, where am I going to sail? He's looking at these old books and deciding, where am I going to go in these cool voyages? Where are these places he's going to go to go figure out? He's going to have a lot of literature to look through to give him ideas. He's going to have these old books, things that maybe Lomas Longstrider or Farman maybe didn't have access to rare books that would maybe describe some of these places and, and maybe even have information on their markets and trade goods that uh, might be something that's a, a kind of well protected secrets for example we would not he wouldn't go to Valeria probably because we did by this time already have area's experience however that was kept under wraps right Barth didn't write about Araya. barth's writings on Area came out much later so that's interesting to consider. Carlis might not have known about that. On the other hand, he's an insider, so he might might have heard it because, you know, he's so tight in the nobility. He might have been in on those secrets. But if he didn't, then why – then you wonder maybe he he had good reason to not go to Valyria. Why didn't he go to Valyria as one of his voyages unless he knew something? Uh, Any thoughts on that, LML? Um, Yeah,
2: he wasn't crazy. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That's a good point. He wasn't crazy. He's no yeah. Yeah. It's (laughs) just, I mean – It's portrayed, it's supposed to be portrayed as a reckless and dangerous thing. It wouldn't work if George had too many people go there. So that's a good point. Yeah.
1: And also, I'm like, there's so much, so many places to get riches in the world to make vast fortunes. Why go to the one that you're like yeah. 99% to just die? Yeah,
0: I get, well, I mean, I guess the argument is that if there really are still riches to be had there, that would make it compelling. But, like you say, it's not worth it when there's other possibilities. Yeah. And so that's that's the other way to look at this. Maybe Corlys looked at the history of his family and all the different voyages House Valerian did, including when they lived in Valyria, like when they were before the Doom, like the Valerians the back then were apparently a, a naval house and they would have probably been exploring back then as well. They may have gone to Sothorius, they may have gone to these other places, but, but Corius may have had the opposite attitude. He may have looked at all the places his family had been and said, I'm not going there. I'm going to places they haven't been. He would have used it as a checklist for places he doesn't want to go. He's like, I want to go to new places only.
2: Corliss comes off as a very practical and savvy kind of person. It just doesn't fit his character to do something reckless and dangerous. Um, I mean, he was fearless, yes, but not not foolish, foolish and reckless. Um, so, yeah, I just don't feel like it fits his personality. Uh, that's probably what I'd say.
0: I agree with that. Yeah, I think you're right. I think we we do have a good, pretty good beat on his personality, at least enough to know that he wasn't uh, like a Euron type of, you know vision visionary in that sense he was more practical yeah so it's probably it could be some of both right he could be he may have wanted to check out some of the places his family had been but maybe because it had been so long it was time to check it out again or maybe because they'd only been there before the doom and of course the doom reshaped global politics so there could be all sorts of new markets opening up and uh Trade goods, like he could, like I said, he, could, he would have information on ancient trade routes and things like that. Um, and given that he eventually amassed a greater fortune than that of the Lannisters or Hightowers, which is kind of staggering to think about, mm-hmm. he definitely, as he said, had his eye on being practical this whole time. No matter what he was doing, it was mixed in with making sure a profit came out of it all. And uh, that speaks to him having a real good sense of value. Like, you, you got to know what trade goods. Can be brought back to Westeros and sell for a bunch. Some of them, you know, it's kind of obvious. Some of the spices and stuff that already have. But if he's going to new places that Westerosi have never been, he's got to take a look at what they have and be like, "This, I want to buy a lot of this and take it back. I want to buy a lot of this and take it back." He's got to know what's going to sell. So that's a whole different type of mindset than being a politician or being a sailor or being a warrior. It's just a. Totally different um, skill set, so it's just more fascinating. We're just building this picture of this guy who had so many
2: skills. Yeah, he struck that balance between taking smart, calculated risks, but not, but sort of quitting while you're ahead, uh, knowing when to return home, that kind of thing. So it's um, that's you know it's a good example of how you be successful. You can't be successful by sitting home and not venturing anything. Uh, but you know, but yeah. Also, the other thing about sailing to Valeria. Is it's hard to get a crew to sail to Valeria, and so yeah, that's true. You know, that's another, that's another challenge.
0: That's actually a great point that uh, we can talk about that now. I had talked about it; I, I had it in the notes for later, but it's totally fine to talk about now. Which is that as a High Lord, he has a different sort of relationship with his sailors than, say, Alyssa Farman, right? He, some of them are kind of sworn to follow him no matter what. Whereas Farman, she had to attract people. She's like, hey, y'all. She had to use her charisma and and lots of money, which he Snake had the money too, but. She didn't have, you know, sworn men and uh, people like Oakenfist. And, and I mean, she
1: was specifically a fugitive. She had things going <laughs> yeah, against her, a fugitive true. and a woman.
0: <laughs> she, she not only had to recruit people under the radar, but <laughs> she couldn't recruit her own people. Yeah.
2: Yeah, no, that's a good point uh, to put your finger on that. Yeah, he, it's almost more like the responsibility we see Rob and Ned deal with when they're thinking about their own men and risking the lives of their men who follow them. Those are the kind of things that Corliss would be thinking of uh, when he decides where to go.
0: Yeah. So if we think about other stuff, we talk about wealth, about trade goods. Well, there's other things that have extreme value, like artifacts. And for example, we hear about House Celtigar, which is also a house that, uh, of, with Valyrian Valerian origin. And we hear that on Claw Isle, their capital, they have a kraken horn and a Valyrian steel axe. That's got to be worth a ton, <laughs> both of those things. So Corlys in his books, if he's looking about, you know, he might be keeping an eye out for things like that, for opportunities to get Valyrian steel or, I don't know, cracking horns, I guess. That would be...
1: Although we don't hear about those things. We don't, not even found a peep. It, that uh, it doesn't point to it. Yeah. That, that can be something that you can find and lose in a generation. Absolutely. Can look for and not find. You just got to figure
0: that given their heritage and coming from Valyria, a place that... Seemingly had some magical artifacts, them being fairly they weren't well, you know, one of the 40 Dragon Rider families, but they were wealthy and powerful, so they they probably had some cool stuff. <laughs> Maybe uh wanted to get some of it back if they knew where more of it could be found. Um now think about it, and here's another connection that that's I think is really interesting, That that the sea snake had an advantage where these other explorers didn't. Consider places Consider how the nobility. Even in Places thousands of miles away is sort of like an old boys network the girls too, but mostly boys um, Where they kind of just you're a noble from thousands of miles away. They kind of just oh, hello, sir You know, welcome. You know, you're one of us um, in some ways. It's very literal like at Volantis You can't go behind the black walls of Volantis unless you're invited in or unless you can trace your descent to old Valyria So Lomus Longstrader goes to Volantis Eh, what can he do? Sea Snake sails into Valantis, and they're like, oh, you are certainly the blood of old Valyria. Hi, welcome. How you doing? So I think like just in these places, he's going to get a, the the red carpet rolled out for him just because of who he is and who his house is and because he's rich. And that obviously that counts for a lot, too, because uh, they want him to be his friend. Whereas people are just going to care about Lomas Longstrider. <laughs> they're not going to necessarily care about Alyssa Farman either. Uh, some people will. But uh, to a higher degree, um, Sea Snake, just wherever he goes, people are going to be... <coughs> wanting to talk to him, wanting to give him stuff, wanting to, you know. So I think that's really, really important, a really big differentiator. They're like, Mm -hmm. oh, it's the Lord of the Tides. (laughs) You know, that's a big name. So um any thoughts on that LML um what might he what like secrets he could get behind the black walls what what that what does access gets him what other things uh, it would do
2: No I'm I'm sure the racists in Volantis liked uh, Corliss Valerian quite a bit uh, <laughs>
0: <laughs> Yeah he has the silver hair and the purple eyes fits right in <laughs> No but seriously
2: that's a great point I hadn't thought about that um it, it, you know it's a again just like we we just said uh, Corliss is going to be somewhat adverse to taking foolish risks because of his status as a lord Ah, uh, he also had a lot of doors open to him, or would have as a lord, and so yeah, that that definitely helped his uh, voyages be so profitable. So no, that's just a good point.
0: And the, the same thing goes with books. Any, anything that any access he had at the citadel to reading about ship design and other places, he might have that at Volantis as well, whereas other people wouldn't. Um, he would have access to whatever their secrets are, maybe at least at least greater access to those things. And that would teach him maybe more things about shipbuilding and trade routes and, and things like that, uh, about what other places might be worth going to. And even if his station didn't help him, like his, his being Lord of the Tides and all that, his money, that <laughs> speaks. That carry, that's uh, the universal language, of course. Summer Isles is another one of his major voyages. And talk about learning ship design. Apparently, the, the Summer Islanders have some of the best ship designs in the world. They're the, the most explorer of all the people we know, you could say, probably. And uh, he had to have learned some things there. Um, any other thoughts on what he what might happen to the Summer Islands for him? That's uh, They're kind of a different culture, and I wonder how he was received there different to some of the other places.
2: Yeah, the Summer Islands are amazing um, because when you – I mean, the Summer Islands is like shipbuilding central. Uh, their, their boats are built up quite a lot in the uh, – when Sam gets on one, in the main series. So we know that these guys are just OG shipbuilders with techniques that have been developed kind of apart from everyone else. They're closely guarded. They have a different kind of wood, this golden heart wood, which enables them to, you know, if they can make bows that are better than anything but dragon bone, then that tells you this wood is extraordinarily uh, rigid, uh, yet flexible and supple. So it's like the perfect kind of wood that you want for long shafts and and beams and things and so they could probably (laughs)
0: that's what
2: she said (laughs) sorry yeah no i was just taking that as far as i could um so yeah it's definitely uh it's one of those things where you can see george has designed the culture a little bit there not only are they good shipwrights because they live on islands but because they have a natural resource which enables them to do that so corliss definitely would have learned quite a bit. In the uh, Summer Isles, that's a good, a good another good point to raise. I feel like
0: <laughs> they would have been. I just picture him nerding out with some other Summer Islanders, where there's a translator who can barely keep up. He's like they're just talking each other so fast. They have so much they want to say about ship design and nerding out over all that stuff. And but the translators be like, "Wait, hold on. I can't. I, I got to tell him what you said. And <laughs> give me a second, man." Uh, super chat from dark mother feeling sentimental about the smart couple who streams together to all our benefit. Indeed. Mm. Even when one of us almost dies of a coughing. Fit. <laughs> yeah. so the,
2: the chat was, the chat was all like tears of lists, tears of list. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> I yeah, it might have been, I don't know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you're clearly immune to the Tears of Leese because yeah. you're still alive. It didn't kill you, so. The Strangler. Yeah,
1: well, I, I am the Weeping Lady of Leese. You can see me back there with That's the true. Tears of Leese. so I should, I should damn well be immune to it. You notice Aziz real
2: quickly reached out and dumped over her cup of water. What's that about?
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, okay, well, let's move on to the next step here.
0: Uh, the Ice Wolf. The Ice Wolf. We're going to talk about the Ice Wolf. So, Consider all this stuff we've talked about to this point, all the different places, Old Town, Volantis, uh, Pentos, Summer Islands, probably Bravo, all these places that have shipbuilding as part of their history. He's been to all of them, and then he builds the Ice Wolf. So what is the point of the Ice Wolf? It was, uh, well, he wanted to go north. Uh, northwest. He wanted to find a way around basically what's the lands of always Winter. So how cool is that? He was trying to sail north and west, which as far as we know, no one's done that. And wow, that seems, talk about brave. I mean, it's not going to Valyria, I guess, but that's got to be damn cold. And it, it, I guess the ice wolf would have been a ship that could handle things like ice in the water. Um, maybe it could have
1: gone with like the whale,
0: <laughs> the
2: whales. <laughs> <laughs> well, Martin does call um whales the wolves of the sea in a, a couple of instances, but okay. that's true. There we that's go. true. The ice
1: wolf can be a whale.
2: This this voyage is really interesting, Aziz, because it's it's seen it's probably the most risky. If you will, of anything, even sailing to a shy, like people go to a shy, that happens. Trying to find a Northwest Passage, it's definitely a, one, his riskiest voyage. But it's also Martin trying to riff on, you know, the explorers of uh, the 16th century and the f- 14th and 15th century, where they're trying to find a new passage. But again, think about it: if he finds a new passage, that's a trade route. So yes. really, he's still mm-hmm. going after trade there.
0: Yeah, it's not it doesn't it's it's you're right that it's more risky in that it has more implied dangers and that it also has more danger of being uh not making a profit. Because if he doesn't find a passage, there's nothing else up there <laughs> to 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 do. Um it's not like he can trade with the White Walkers or something. Now, that said, he definitely still had money in mind even without the passage, because on the way to, to this. We're told that he did two voyages in the Ice Wolf, at least two voyages in the Ice Wolf. And this is when he goes to Bravos, which Shay is putting on screen. And he even goes to places like Eastwatch and Hardhome, which is another one we just... Hard, he went to trade with Hardhome. Now, Uh-oh, conspiracy how, how time, did,
2: conspiracy time.
0: Yeah, and how did he do that? That's supposed to be against the law. You're not supposed to trade with wildlings. So... It just is just glossed over, I guess. He just maybe because he's witch and powerful, and he's the sea snake, he can do that. But we hear about Davos being on a ship with when he was young, and he he was sailing with somebody that that traded arms to the wildlings and got executed. So maybe the sea snake wasn't trading them weapons. Maybe that's how he got away with it. He just traded, you know, whale bones for furs. I don't know things like that. So that would maybe how he got away with it. But it's interesting. So what do you, what do you think, Elmo? What are some of the conspiracy theories that could come from this? <laughs>
2: Oh well, just anytime hard home comes up, I want to start talking about dragon bombs and the faceless men and the maesters. But all that <laughs> happened a long time ago. That was six hundred years in the past. We're only like two hundred years in the past here, so That's um, true. it does. Yeah. It is interesting. Is does that show a little bit of like the sea snake throwing around his political power, where he's breaking the law because he kind of knows he can get away with it, and just sort of goes to hard home? Is like, yeah, they're not going to do shit about it.
0: We might be suffering from. Um, getting our chronology off here it's possible this prohibition with trading against the wildlings had didn't exist yet I, I would think it did though i would think it existed for a long time i would think the starks would be like
2: yeah i would think don't so. do that
0: <laughs> but we don't know for sure the, the prohibition may have only been a northern thing maybe it was more of a maybe it didn't spread to the rest of the realm because they just didn't didn't matter to them
1: maybe they have like contracts like i got the official wilding contract and i'm the <laughs> only one who can trade to them
2: well after yeah, after martin finishes possible. all fin- off, you know um winds of winter dream of spring all the duncan egg <laughs> books fire and blood 2, and we get the tale of the sea snake uh he can garden in you know that whole dynamic of him going to hard home we can figure out if that was a rebellious act or if he got a waiver or what well, the other part that, that's interesting
0: here, too, to, to throw in the mix with the details is that he went to Eastwatch and then to Hardhome. So whatever the what Night's Watch set, whatever the laws were, he found out right before he went there. So they probably knew he was going there. <laughs> so it may have been on more on the up and up than we think. But uh, it's still it's definitely a, a point of interest for sure.
2: Yeah, that points to it being to him having permission if he went to Eastwatch first. Yeah,
0: you'd yeah, have to agree. So then he apparently went to, now it's unclear whether he did this first or after failing to find a Northwest Passage, but he went to Lorath. Um, here comes another map. Lorath, of course, is the kind of the backwater of the of the nine free cities. It's the least wealthy and the... Rude. That's what it says in the World of Ice and Fire. But yeah, rude. It is rude. <laughs> and, uh, it's rude. Uh, and it's got a really interesting history and you wonder how... Corleese interacted with the blind god worshippers or the maze or any of that. What Do you have any, maybe even some more, uh, maybe some more ship design stuff there? Probably not. Um, I don't know. They, they definitely have ship uh, and a lot of fishermen there, but it doesn't sound like they were particularly advanced. What do you think about him interacting with Lorath? Lorath is kind of a lesser discussed, but very interesting place. Uh, very creepy and, and cool.
2: Uh, he probably went up there and was like so, do you guys have any money? <laughs> no, you guys are into I'm gonna, meditation. I'm gonna, I'm gonna okay, that's on. cool. And you used the pronouns funny. Yeah, I'm out of here. He uh,
1: sailed along to some somewhere far more interesting to a sailor. I like money. <laughs>
0: Yeah, he went to the port of Ibn next, which yeah, is really Ib. cool.
1: For Ib.
0: For Ib, yes. And they uh, do
1: have some interesting whale tech for sure. And. Whale tech, ship tech that has to be geared towards, you know, hunting whales.
0: I particularly love this map shot too. I agree with what you said, but
1: I like yeah, that Michael Clarfel. Uh, Michael Clarfel did a really great job of um, giving different architecture to the different regions in in Essos, in particular, where you c- it really is evocative. I think.
2: Um, yeah, I totally agree with that. I- Ib is um, a crazy place. It's very high fantasy. When you read yeah. the description of Ib, like they have a god king and they're like these this weird sort of, um, kind, kind, of
1: kind of like of a need. Neander- with humans, but not quite. You know, it's one of those like donkeys. Yeah, yeah and the
2: whole story of their um, b- them building a city and then get on the mainland Essos and the Dothraki wiping it out. It's it's pretty interesting stuff. But I'm I'm curious, like Corlys, like that's pretty off the beaten path. Like I wonder why he went there. At this point, it's almost like more of an explorer thing, like. He's just sort of hitting everywhere and just seeing what's there. Who knows what sort of opportunity he'll see? But it's interesting. He's open minded, I guess you could say. Like he's looking for trade opportunities in pretty weird places. I yeah. think it's
1: interesting that he goes all the way to Ib on this this trip, but he doesn't actually go to like the Thousand Islands or anything like that until his later trips. He was so close.
0: Yeah, maybe uh maybe he was thinking ahead to that. He's like I need to check out these yeah, bases on the way if I want yeah. to go really far, I need to, you know, get a N- presence. Know the
1: route that I'll take eventually. Yeah. yeah make
0: sure it's a friendly port for him because Ib is known as a fairly closed culture. Apparent foreigners are not allowed outside the city port, the port of Ibn. However, it's a it, Apparently, it does happen sometimes. They're sometimes allowed outside the city with guests, you know, if, if a, a, a local shows them. And if anyone's going to get showed around, it might be the the famous and powerful sea snake.
2: Well, let's think about this. The Ibanes are known for being traders themselves. They yeah. they show up in ports everywhere, and so they'd surely been showing up at Driftmark um, forever. And so he yeah, probably actually had right. connections to Ib before he ever sailed there. He probably at least had some names to drop or somebody to look up, uh, I would I'm
1: think. picturing like some Ibbenese sailors like, yeah, you ever come <laughs> to Ib? Look me up. You know, just <laughs> an empty gesture. And then <laughs> shows up.
2: And they're like, that's look right. at this motherfucker.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a great point, actually. In fact, it might their history might go back even farther than that. They may have been trading with House Valerian before the Doom uh, because the... Yeah, as a culture, goes, is as ancient as the dawn age, and they've been an island nation for since their beginning. So they've been trading all over. Uh, So that that actually stands to reason quite a bit. Um, Yeah, that's a good catch there. That that he probably knew them before they knew him, or other way around. Yeah, they they knew him before he knew them.
2: Yeah, Corliss is a little bit of an OG here. Like he's running shit. You know, I mean, he's not just sailing (laughs) around the world. Like he's making connections. He's making money. He's establishing himself. Like this guy is is uh he's an enter enterprising dude.
0: And this is yet again a place for him to study, like Shaya said, the whaling ships. This is yet another style of ship for him to to geek out over and study and learn from. Uh because this is still before his final most famous vessel is built, the sea snake. So a lot of lot of different books and, and experiences went into the ice wolf, but even more went into the sea snake, which hasn't even happened yet. So that was uh the first voyage, as Ashaya said, it looks like Ib was as far as he went besides the – well, no, Ib is as far as he went on yeah, his first voyage. His the first second boy. voyage in the Ice Wolf is when he goes beyond the Wall. But uh, he already which is,
1: went beyond the Wall in right. the first voyage, you know, technically. It's yeah, Hardhome, you're right. But. Sorry,
0: we should say beyond Hardhome. This is when yeah. he goes behind Har- Hardhome. This is when he's actually looking for the Northwest Passage. So he's already been to Hardhome, Eastwatch, and all that, and he's, he's – Already kind of established, at least he knows what's there, so he's going So he's going farther. from
1: the east trying to find a way to get to the west, north, to yes, be clear. Yes, he's trying to
0: sail around it he's all. Coming,
1: yeah. As we saw, he was coming from Bravo's, Florath, and Essos side.
0: And that makes a lot of sense, because as we know, it's very dangerous to sail from uh, to, uh, along the south of Westeros. Because a lot of ships can't yeah. do that very easily. Um, a lot of ships are built in Old Town and just spend their entire life life of a ship going to places, just staying on the West Coast. They would go to Lordsport and Landisport and the Arbor and back, just back and forth, maybe maybe to Bear Island. But they would, ne- a lot of times, would never even bother to sail east because it's dangerous. There's whirlpools and krakens and that, that southern shore of Doran is dangerous.
2: There's just, yeah, there's nowhere to land besides Starfall, basically all the way from Old Town to uh, like the Water Gardens or, um, you know, Sunspear. Yeah, we saw how
0: bad it was for Oakenfist. Um, so, yeah, it's not... Uh, not an easy thing it's, it might seem simple but it's not so for this northerly route thing i really I, I wish i had more to say about it i don't i don't want i'm, I'm reluctant to move on because it's just such a cool idea um you wonder if he was how aware he was of things like is the world a globe and if he was trying to go yeah, yeah so northwest passage was was his main goal but if he found you know uh away around the globe he certainly would have run with that as well if whatever else he found he would have been interested in but i guess he didn't find anything i wish we had more detail on exactly how the borders like just how far north he tried to go and uh did he see anything like how cold was it uh, i doubt he saw dead things in the water but it, you know that kind of thing comes to mind <laughs> you know when you're someone is going that far north like where the the land of always winter is uh very very um provocative evocative not well aziz every
2: time george (laughs) mentions the idea that there might be a passage um it just makes me think that he's might be keeping alive the idea that the others uh don't just come out in westeros and that they come down from the north pole maybe into the gray waste you know and that the demons of the lion of night that we hear about in the east are actually the others and it's their version of the others um, that's a okay. that's a theory that like you know Quinn from Ideas of Ice and Fire likes that one. A few other people have talked about it. So every time he teases that Northwest Passage idea, I feel like he's sort of keeping that idea alive.
0: I believe that uh, Adam Whitehead likes, uh, you know, as in A.K. Wordhead, is also a fan of that theory. I think he's even drawn a speculative map of you know West Planetos' version of Antarctica, or would that be it? no the North Pole? Oh, Wait, yeah. which is is Antarctica in the south of the North? I always forget.
2: Do you do God, haven't you ever seen Alien yeah. vs. Predator in Antarctica, <laughs> where they have they find the pyramids? And
0: <laughs>
2: sorry, <I> guess not. <laughs> Uh, super chat
0: from Sanrixian666 for the C-snick. No, the, for the snee neck. The snee neck. Sorry. I'm very sorry. I mispronounced the snee the neck. <laughs> you know how many times I wrote the Sean snake in our documents? <laughs> so many. No comment. So many. No comment. All right. So let's do our mid-roll shout-outs as well as... Um, showing that process video we wanted to show. So this is our little mm-hmm. mid-roll break that includes some fun art. Let's start with that. Let's do the process video first.
1: Okay, here we go. I will play this.
0: Look how cool this is! It's sped up a little.
1: Yeah, I had to speed it up from what he even linked us to just get it under one minute. But yeah, look you at that nice turbo,
0: close. turbo fingers.
1: Yeah, he's he is that fast though in real life. <laughs>
0: See how the magic is done. Look at that. Look at those dragons coming in. His yeah, his ability really cool. to create depth is really, I mean, is really fantastic.
1: You can see inside the like, 3D models and preferences that he has.
2: That's yeah. really cool. Yeah, I always enjoy seeing this kind of stuff. I think that's yeah. one of the things people enjoy about watching Sanry work on our live streams. Oh, yeah, yeah. You yeah. can yes. see yeah, the process.
1: You, but just, you can see these airbrush things, by the way. And
0: the yeah, look how things. cool that is. Look at that color. Love it. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, I see that... Uh, It's. It is Antarctica is the south and Arctic is the north. Okay, right.
2: (laughs) I can never keep that straight. I can never remember. (laughs) Antarctica is in the south. That's where Atlantis is. It's under the ice down there. Okay. So yeah, you
1: can see
2: Antarctica. And we got through that.
1: And so yeah, like we said, that'll be for sale imminently. Yeah. And we will certainly say something in an episode when it is actually for sale.
0: For um, one of our other non "Song of Ice and Fire" favorite fandoms is the Expanse. Of course, the Expanse has a deep connection to George R. R. Martin, given that the uh, authors—it was
1: started in a role-playing group that George um, was part of with George R. R. Martin. Yeah, Yeah. Um, but book eight out of nine, and there are also a variety of short stories and novellas. Is out
0: now. Yep, and only so the series is going to be done in probably two years when the next final book comes out. And we're huge fans. And you can get the you can get the book through our um, website, Amazon. Uh, and I can links tell you that
1: I've loved – I've really enjoyed every book in the series, but this most recent one, Book 8, is my favorite in the series. So the quality just stays up there. Highly recommend it. There's a new season, Season 4, coming out on Amazon probably late this year. So it's never been a better time to get into The Expanse.
0: Yep. It's a great, great experience. The world building is fantastic. The characters are great. Um, And each season is better than the last Okay, um, I mentioned our Radio Westeros Dance of the Dragons collaboration at the beginning of this episode. Just a reminder that we're going to be recording that this week, and uh, hopefully that'll be out. We should, we're expecting to get it out before the TV season. That's our goal, so keep an eye out for that. Um, and as, as a reminder, uh, you can use the con- the discount code HISTORY to get 5%, uh, sorry, $5 off your Ice and Fire Con ticket purchase or your Con of Thrones ticket purchase. We hope to see you at both conventions, uh, or at least one if you can make one. And uh, please ask us. Anything you want to about uh, the convention experience or mm-hmm. anything like that? We we host discussions about it on our Facebook pay, our Facebook group, which also I would like to recommend at this point.
1: Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. yeah, so we'll see you at Ice and Fire Con. We hope LML will be there and. I Means Rixian will be there. Speaking of yep. of her, of her. That, and uh, that goes for whatever people. year
0: you're listening to. This is night 2019, and we're recording this. But this this message <laughs> applies to 2020, 2021, <laughs> 2022.
1: I do think it is likely that at least we will be at all of these years. <laughs> That's right. Yes, it's we're a lovely not. Lovely convention.
0: We are not likely to go anywhere so easily. <laughs> so let's do some mid roll shout outs for patrons who have continued to make our show possible. We are. Unendingly grateful for what being able to do this for a living. It's it's really just such a blessing. Thank you to Vorsaki, wielder of a Valerian Steel Arak with a Dragonbone Hilt, Kohel Koei called Sun Piercer, wielder of a dragonbone bow, Kokabo the Tamer, wielder of the wildfire whip Gehenna. And I would like to shout out two different queens of love and beauty. We're uh Feeling the love today. Aaron, lady of the long desert, names Emma of Starfall, the queen of love and beauty, in sight of pods and men.
1: How lovely.
0: That's right. And from the depths of Fleabottom, Lord Ken of House Hammer has declared for Queen Carl. Sorry, Queen Carrie. (laughs) 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 I really butchered that. Let me start that over. From the depths of Fleabottom, Lord Carrie of House Hammer has declared for Queen Carrie, Fire of the North, who recovered Dark Sister from beyond the Wall. Very cool.
1: I was like, wow, we've got two same-sex pairings in this one, <laughs> Queen Carl. <laughs> oh.
0: Sigh. <laughs> uh, and also, thanks to our Ironborn captains, it's definitely time to shout out the Sailing Group, given the uh, yeah. content of this episode. Black Mato Storm Stormrider is captain of the Rusted Hinge. Oysan the Wanderer is captain of Naga's Living Flame. Sir Selvus Redblade of White Harbor is captain of Trident of the North. Lord Chucklaw is captain of the Droman Nightblood, is destroyer of evil. John Gregor is captain of the Fists of the Drowned God. Sir Chiron of Lonely Light is scourge of the Sunset Sea. Captain of Nagas Breath, a Dromond armed with siphons of wildfire. Aileen is archer queen, captain of the Border Collie. Crimson Cade is captain of the Drowned Queen's Vengeance. of the Just is collector of tolls, captain of the Golden Gift. Lord Mitch of House Bailey is captain of Widow's Blood. His heir is Lordling of Mason of House Bailey. Beneath the Gold is a podcast focusing on lesser known A Song of Ice and Fire characters. And Phantom of House Physics is the Sunset King, Plato Oplomo, captain of Leviathan's Banshee. I also want to give a shout out to LML's Sunday streams. People have been calling it church, which is pretty uh, pretty accurate. It's Sunday, so that's a good thing to call it. And uh, you, you keeping that regular for quite a long time has really made it, uh, well, it made it a regular thing. A lot of people in the fandom, just it's, it's the thing you do every Sunday. Uh, I show up. Very often on Sundays and hang out, have a good time, and you guys always have fun discussions. And there's very often San Rixian art, and just just a it's a great regular experience. You guys are doing a great job.
2: Well, thanks, man. Um, it has it has become a fun staple. Uh, sometimes it it gets ahead of me as far as like editing all the audio to put everything on the podcast stream. Um, but I'm I'm looking for some help on that, and I'm getting better at that. But uh, yeah, no, it's great. It's it's fun to collaborate with all the other Myth heads. And the exciting thing is that we're going to be turning this into uh, a sh- an HBO show coverage hour uh, yeah, during I'm, the season I'm here.
1: I'm sorry, I just really cracked up at the idea. You're like, the fun thing is that we're going to be turning this into an HBO show.
2: <laughs> oh. Yeah, <laughs> anyway, big so news! Big news! We've big been picked news. up. Uh, they dropped the ringer. Sorry, Bill Simmons. Sorry, Mallory Rubin. Jason Concepcion, you guys are out. And, uh, too bad
0: this isn't April Fool's Day. This was yesterday. It was April Fool's Day. We should really go over. Perfect. Yeah, well,
2: I can read the synopsis for my fantasy novel if you'd like. Um, but <laughs> Actually,
0: you should because it's really funny. It's only a few paragraphs, too. So, yeah, do it. Do you have it handy? I do. It's
2: sets up right here, so... He hasn't memorized. So, so just real quick, I've been finished my series plug. So basically, this Sunday, three Eastern pregame show with all the myth heads. We'll be analyzing the show from a book's perspective, trying to read the tea leaves, uh, talking about chiefly those sort of comparisons, symbolism, stuff like that. Lots of fun myth heads, you know, some you don't. Uh, so that's going to be happening. We'll also do a postgame show. That's all on the Lucifer Means Lightbringer channel, and you guys know you can cool. find all my stuff by looking for Lucifer means Lightbringer, but I am, I am an aspiring author uh, like like many of you guys. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, speaking of Atlantis and lost civilizations, I'd, I'm writing something called the Chronicles of Akinra. And uh, so book one will follow Icentris, the rise and fall of the last queen of the kingdom of Levitra. Isentris, <laughs> a powerful sorcer- sorceress, and the three princes of the blood royal, Hermias, Jalen, and Trizivir. With the death of their father, King Tarka the Seventh, these princes will turn to rivals, and the throne of Levitra stands imperiled. Her own hands tied by secrets more dangerous still, Icentris must work to keep the peace through the hidden hands of her only true allies: the princess Julesa, a talented girl of only seventeen; her handmaiden Humira, a refugee of the same foreign <laughs> war that claimed the life of King Tarka, and the assistant to the keeper of records, Levimir Flexpen. Stick. <laughs> Stick thin yet iron strong, the one-legged librarian Levimir had been Isentris' pillar for years, functioning as her eyes and ears inside the capital and ferreting out every plot. But when the doomsday prophecy of an ancient tome aligns with the current events, Queen Icentris and her motley band must work their greatest miracle yet to save Levitra from eating itself. <laughs> and all the while, under the holy mountain Viagra, sleeps the ancient <laughs> magic known as the Ekinra.
0: The holy Mountain Viagra. So there's there's a little
2: more, but I don't want to. Um, you know, we got to hear about the yeah. neighboring city state of Sea Alice and the evil King Chantix. <laughs> but um, as you can see, this is a, this is a fantasy novel synopsis made purely out of the names of drugs. And uh, yeah. this is <laughs> because pharmaceutical drugs sound just like fantasy names. And yeah, it's it's on my yes, Facebook and Twitter if you want the rest.
0: Yes, that's great okay so we have this great parallel um lml you want to take this you uh we we had a chat with at kwdent2 who is co-host of the blood of the podcast podcast check that out and on twitter we had this this conversation about i pointed out that i didn't really have uh, a great parallel life for Corliss and uh, well here we go we 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 had one uh, brought to us to our attention anyway
2: yeah, shout out to K.W. Dent and the blood of the podcast. This was a really nice parallel. So this is, this is done in the style of the there are two answers, you know, it's kind mm-hmm. of. Uh, so Corlys Valerian was the first to sail Westeros to visit Nefer and navigate the Thousand Islands. Similarly, Tyrion Lannister has, a, has somewhat of an explorer's arc early in a Game of Thrones as he travels to and visits the Wall. While Corlys Velaryon sailed his ship Ice Wolf north to the Wall, Tyrion travels with Jon Snow and Ghost. Ghost, a white direwolf, certainly is the physical embodiment of an ice wolf. Corlys yes. Velaryon then Ooh. travels east, as does Tyrion in A Dance with Dragons. In the famous Targaryen Civil War, The Dying of the Dragons, or The Dance of the Dragons as it is better known, Corlys Velaryon serves as Rhaenyra Targaryen's Hand of the Queen... And, of course, we know Targaryen, uh, Tyrion was the Hand of the King during the War of the Five Kings, or at least the surrogate uh, Hand of the King. Um, so, Rhaenyra was the leader of the blacks uh, in the Civil War, and she's often paralleled with Daenerys Targaryen. And In the show, Tyrion serves as the Hand of the Queen to Daenerys Targaryen. And, of course, that could happen in the books, too, as Corlys did to Rhaenyra. Um, so, they have... Uh, What's this mean, L.A. names?
0: Oh, yeah. He, he pointed out that that there's some naming convention similarities with all uh, the L names, Lannister names, like uh, um, Lyman and Lorimar and uh, several others that are escaping me, and comparing that to how many L names there are, Lena
2: and Laenor, uh from the Valyrians. And then if you consider the Tyrion-Targaryen theory, shout out to my, uh, I've got a Tyrion-Targaryen theory on my com. It goes... It gives both Corlys and Tyrion Valerian descent. Additionally, Tyrion Targaryen would make both Corlys and Tyrion the grandsons of King Jaehaerys I and King Jaehaerys II, respectively. Now, that is some next-level shit right there. Nice job, Mm P.W.
0: That last one is like, yeah, that's that's hard to catch, that kind of thing. And I I love those parentage, those, those family tree catches like that. And the fact that they're both Jaharis's is really cool. And in fact, we, we found a different parallel Jaharis thing like that at a different one. I'm, that's escaping me, but
2: mm. it, it
0: just sells the idea that it was 100% intentional. The fact that there's two of these, at least two of these. Uh, also on screen right now is uh, Xerxes the blue-eyed cat. The blue-eyed Siamese. The white. A white walker kitty. Mm. <laughs> Um, Okay, so let's move on to the actual voyages of the actual sea snake the ship not the guy the ship that he was named after nine Voyages to Essos on this ship alone nine voyages to Essos damn (laughs) Quote here
1: Traders from Old Town and the Arbor oft sailed as far as Carth in search of spice, silk, and other treasures. But Corley's Valerian and the Sea Snake were the first to go beyond, passing through the Jade Gates to Yt and the Isle of Lang. Returning with so rich a load of silk and spice that he doubled the wealth of House Valerian in a stroke.
0: Okay, doubled the wealth of a house that was absurdly wealthy. So wow, and it kind of goes. Uh, without saying well maybe it does go without saying the the interesting thing here is these are things that are these are wealthy trade goods sold to wealthy people he's not bringing back you know cheaper you know fabrics for making common garments with. this is silk and spice these are the kind of things like common born people can't even afford pepper in Westeros so this is these are all expensive trade goods and that's why when Jeharis was talking about making like a tax on the wealthy he taxed luxury goods and uh, but I don't know if those taxes were still in place when the sea snake was uh doing his thing i think they were because it was certainly w- during Jaharis' realm so or rain rather so i gotta figure uh the realm itself may have benefited from the their cut of of these voyages uh large taxes and so in a sense some of that money maybe did trickle down maybe maybe that's how some of the uh public works projects were partly funded
2: well, so that's the whole point of, of trickle-down theory is it works to the extent that if you have the wealthy people who are increasing their wealth, turning around and using their wealth on things that create other jobs, then it works. It gets short-circuited when the wealthy don't have an incentive to create jobs, which is you know economics and all that shit. But in right. this kind of economy, um, we're, we can specifically see that Lord Corliss does use his wealth to build a whole new fucking city. Uh, which mm-hmm. it that's going to create an awful lot of jobs, and also the additional trade flowing to the island created two new towns that started rapidly increasing. Um, so there's a lot of wealth that he brought to his island, and that probably is strategic because he's like part explorer, part merchant, part lord, and part general all at the same time. So he's thinking about the security of his island and capturing trade. You know, he's taking trade from other spots like um, gold town and King's Landing uh, so there's it's a lot of st- st- uh, strategy a lot of strategy going on there
0: that's an excellent point I want to add something to that which is that it's, you're right that it's a good example of a, of a time where he is definitely creating jobs with all this these works projects and things like that and there's a hidden factor here which is that the peasants are not peasantry isn't aren't super mobile but they're not Forced to live where they live, it's just hard for them to move. But if they can move, a lot of times they will. And so, by making his play his kingdom, the kingdom, his his island prosperous, he's encouraging more commoners to move there and thus participate in this prosperity. And thus, and these commoners are people that can be recruited as sailors and soldiers and all that. It's actually kind of a, that's a thing that happened in the Middle Ages that, that when, uh, after the Black Death, labor was at a shortage and peasants actually had a kind of a weird market advantage where there wasn't enough of them. So they could sort of pick and choose where they went to get better wages. Now, of course, that ended badly because law, people started passing laws to prevent them from moving from place to place. But uh, And that happened in Westeros too. Bloodraven made people stay put during the drought. Um, but, but the fact that he made people stay put during the drought implies that they were allowed to move around when there wasn't things like that going on, which is how we can get to this place, uh, which is that the Sea Snake was probably increasing his own population of his own island, which just gives him more power as well. Back to the fact that he doubled their wealth at a stroke is just mind-boggling considering how wealthy they were. It's like going from, I don't know, being worth... 200 million to being worth 400 million. (laughs) Uh, Probably even more than that, really. Uh, So let's look at uh, the Jade Gates and Karth. We have a map for that. And uh, again, we get to treat ourselves to the the, uh, visual goodies from Michael Clarfeld. And you got to figure there's some crazy good wealth and trade opportunities there because that is a very advanced civilization that's existed for a long time. They have wealth. They have. You know, these emperor gemstone emperors? I mean, it just sounds like they're wealthy, right?
2: <laughs> so I think Aziz, um, George Martin thinks a lot about trade routes. Um, trade routes definitely defined the ancient world uh to an extent that they don't quite the same anymore. And if you look at Karth, you can see exactly why it's so wealthy, because it sits astride both a you know, a land and a sea passage that are the only passages through natural obstacles anywhere around and and the same thing we used the same logic when we were trying to figure out if Ashai used to be the capital of the Great Empire of the Dawn and we figured out that a city that big sitting on the tip of a peninsula astride something called the Saffron Straits and saffron we are told is the most valuable spice in the world Mm-hmm. There's no question that this is a spot that a wealthy civilization would exist on right on the trade route there. So Martin thinks about this a lot when he thinks about wealth and power. And we see that reflected here with the Sea Snake.
0: That's an excellent point. And if you think back a little farther in history, Karth's positioning was even better when Valyria was still there. Because <laughs> that's talk about the trade opportunities they would have from Valyria. They were probably just outstanding valeria with all their absurd amounts of wealth would just gobble up luxury goods as well as you know slaves and other things they would probably just be huge consumers of such things given their dramatic wealth so let's uh, let's go forward here now we have some art E.T. <laughs> i'm sorry did you say that, that
2: that somebody would gobble up the sea snake <laughs>
0: Yes, they would gobble up the sea snake. <laughs> that's, that's more um, euphemisms popping up, isn't it?
2: <laughs> it's just that one episode of South Park after uh, I can't hear the word gobble without thinking of carbon, but go ahead. <laughs> so look at the – here's another wonderful piece. We have
0: uh, art of of um, imagining of what Yiti, Utish uh, people would look like given the indications from the world of ice and fire as some cool. of our inspiration there. And I just love, again, I'm just really drawn to the, the depth in this picture, or in this drawing. Um, we also have, uh, he also went to Lang, And as well as this is where you we mentioned the, uh, the the specific spices besides silk. There was saffron, which you mentioned, LML, and then pepper and nutmeg and more. And um, like you said, too, the fact that it's named after saffron, those straits, there's other places that have a similar name. There's the cinnamon straits that we're going to get to in just a minute, and it's the same kind of concept that's named for this thing that makes it so wealthy, and uh, it ex- maybe explains why a civilization was able to flourish there in the first place. The Iron Islands does it sort of refers to the people, but they have great iron deposits there as well. That's a big part of where... Yeah, they're no, named
2: it's named after the iron deposits. The people are just really egotistical and bullheaded. They're like, <laughs> no, it's named after <laughs> us because we're tough <laughs> like like, no, dipshit, it's named after the Iron Sonya Islands. <laughs> <laughs> but uh speaking of lang uh so there's the old ones that live under the city and i've got this no i'm kidding <laughs> <laughs> that's part
0: of why i wore the lovecraft shirt today for the old ones living under lang yeah i wonder i kind of doubt that corley's interacted with the old ones but <laughs> no probably not <laughs> but he did go to lang and he may have heard them talked about uh maybe uh i don't know you wonder how they received him because the Langier. They don't. They may. They may not give a crap about his heritage or who he is. They're a little bit, uh, a little bit closed, I guess. Yeah, it's what it's what almost here.
2: like George just sort of tossed that in and like, you know, he went to everywhere in the JNC. He went to Lang and he went to here and he went to there. And Yit's really Y-T and Karth are the places where he probably made the most money.
0: Probably, yeah. There's some other places that are mentioned um, that are hard. They're not really mentioned anywhere at all. They're just on the map, and they're mentioned that the Sea Snake went there. The Isle of Elephants. Marahai and the Isle of Whips, like the Isle of Whips is like a way station for slave trading and uh, Marahai is, looks like Santorini uh, in the
2: uh, GNC, I guess it is. Yeah, It's a or volcanic is it crescent island. It's a caldera island.
0: Yeah. And then the Isle of Elephants is kind of a strange concept. I mean, elephants on an island doesn't sound, mm-hmm. sounds a little strange, but the cinnamon, it's right by the Cinnamon Straits, which I just mentioned, and that is... Cinnamon as well. Uh, Now, here's another quote.
1: Other islands of note in the Jade Sea, as recorded by Corleus Valerian in his letters, include, one, the Isle of Elephants, whose Shan rules from a palace made of ivory. Ivory, that makes sense. Made of
0: ivory. But, you know, (laughs) of
1: elephants. Uh... Marahai, the paradise isle a verdant crescent attended by twin fire islands. Fire Island, eh? Where that's burning cool. mountains belch plumes of molten stone day and night. That's where Alyssa Farman is <laughs> gone. Fire <laughs> <Yeah>. Island.
0: And <laughs> the caldera, that's what he was saying. That's yeah, yeah. perfect.
1: And you can see that in the map, too. Yeah. And three, the Isle of Whips, a bleak and barren way station where slavers from half a dozen lands buy, sell, breed, Break and brand their chattel before sending them onward. Like
0: a mini Slaver's Bay. Yeah, so that one's
1: very tiny, as you can see in the map. And very much smaller than the other two. That's
0: got to be a bleak, horrible place. <laughs> that ex- that's his first of uh, that's his first voyage to Essos. So this was not a small voyage. He went. He did in one voyage, a, a covered a lot of your, what Euron's entire career. <laughs> Euron says he went to all these different places and makes a big deal out of it. Sea Snake just did it and then just did it again and again. Uh, so any more thoughts on any of these places, uh, Isle of Whips or Marhai or any of that, before we move on to the next voyage?
2: It's interesting that he just gets around here. I mean, this is, he's definitely... Why didn't he go to Manticore Island? I don't know. I, yeah, <laughs> he went to just about everywhere else though. We don't ever see that he went to Sothorios or the Basilisk Islands. So he seems to be trying to uh, stay away from that kind of trouble.
0: Yeah, that's that's <laughs> part of the whole. You're right. That that would have been a good thing to bring up when we we're talking about why he didn't go to Valyria. And, and you're, you're you're right about him being more of a um, not certainly not cautious, but but more about bottom lines and not taking risks that don't need to be taken. And like we said, he's clearly oh, yeah. finding wealth. He, why does yeah. he need to go to the Why I go
1: to unknown wealth when you can go to known wealth? Yeah,
0: why do I go to danger? Why go danger when you can just swap some goods? <laughs> keep your keep your danger limited to storms and krakens and pirates. No need to face Ugh. oh my incredible diseases. <laughs> So yeah, but you make a good point, LML, that it's interesting that he only went this far because on his set, only, it's really far, but yeah. in his next voyage, he goes to Ashai, which isn't that much farther, but logistics, if his ship is just full of trade goods, he can't, what's the point of going to Ashai? He doesn't have any room left.
2: <laughs> and you know what? The, the thing about Ashai is that Ashai has very unique needs as far as what they want and what they have. Unlike Mm, any other place. So it's possible that his first voyage to the Jade Sea filled him in on what he could turn a profit with on Ashai. And he came Uh back there later with the things that they need, which I guess is like food and maybe slaves to do experiments on or children. That's a great point. Yeah,
0: you're right. He may have intended to go to Ashai as part of that trip and then changed his mind when he heard the reality of it and been like, actually, let's come back more prepared, more properly prepared. That makes a lot of sense, and of course, if there's any place to get golden gems cheap, it's Ashai. So uh, that tells—I guess this tells us a couple of things: one, that the the that story is at least partly true. There's some good trade goods there, and it may be not as dangerous as some rumors have it being, because uh, he does certainly didn't treat it like Tothorios or Valyria, which you know it isn't like those places, but it is creepy and mysterious, and people apparently just disappear and no, no. there's strange the water isn't drinkable yeah there's you know lots of stuff um any other thoughts on Ash either no he probably you you I figure it was probably somewhat straightforward if he brings lots of food and gives them gets lots of gems and gold like if he's just keeping trying to get trying to get wealth it seems very straightforward how you could get it there but there may be more to it perhaps we will
2: learn more well of course I guess we should give a shout out to alyssa Farman and the fact yeah. that uh, he saw a sun chaser here. I mean, that's that was a pretty cool way to end that Alyssa Farman story. It was exciting. Yeah,
0: yeah any more? I haven't, I haven't had new thoughts on that since we did that episode, but I guess it, it, we should take a second if Esher if or LML, either you have any new thoughts on El, uh, Alyssa being there or what Corley's you know, we know we're pretty sure he was right because of his expertise on ships and everything. And but did he look for her? Did you know he would have maybe assumed she was dead by then?
2: Like I mean he maybe he didn't yeah. look for her because it would have been so long and there's no way she still would have been alive. I really like the idea that George has gardenered in Alyssa Farman as Quave's backstory. I mean, I'm not set on it, but it really makes a lot of sense to me. Um, somebody that's so brave as to steal dragon eggs, defy the blood of the dragon, sail across the unknown ocean—once they were got to a shy—I mean, it could I could totally see her later in life delving into dark magic exploration. I mean, she's this is a fearless person who likes to have power and adventure. It's the kind of person that likes magic. Um, So, I mean, it just makes a lot of sense. And then you have all these parallels with her and Danny, where with Danny reminding her of the Targaryen princess that she used to be in love with and hatching the dragons that the dragon eggs that she set in motion in all likelihood. So, I'm, yeah, I'm I'm still having thought about the theory longer. I still like it. Cool. And that's Painkiller Jane's theory, of course. It's
0: still holding up under scrutiny. That's that's the mark of a good theory. If a theory Mm -hmm. can't hold up under scrutiny, it probably wasn't a good theory in the first place. And this one. Keeps on trucking. It seems to be gaining traction rather than losing it, I think Mm -hmm. would be fair to say, Uh, given uh, our perspective anyway.
2: I don't see... I don't know that there's any, like, major flaw or disqualifying fact in it. It's just speculative, so...
0: Yeah, there's nothing that, like is a slam dunk proof of it, but there's definitely nothing whatsoever that can knock it off the board either.
2: Well, let's think about it this, though. Martin does like to do, I mean, sometimes he does put Easter eggs in, but he likes to do things for a purpose. And yeah. so we've, we Aziz, we've talked about the idea that Danny's probably going to have a glass candle in her possession because Marwin the Mage is coming to find her and advise her. Marwin the Mage had his hands on a bunch of glass candles and figured out how to use them. He's gearing up for the end-of-the-world struggle, so he's probably brought one of those that the Citadel's not using. So We've talked about how, in our a shy, great Empire of the Dawn episode, how originally Martin planned planned on Danny going to a shy. And Quaithe keeps telling her, you know, there's truth, there's truth for you, there's truth. And we get this idea. it's probably deep, magical knowledge. And then Martin changed his plans as we know, and Danny's not going to a shy, but we've talked about how, uh, Danny might be using a glass candle to be able to go to a shy and gather knowledge in a shy, and so if that happens, Danny will be communicating with Quave more, and that gives us an opportunity for Quave and Danny's relationship to build a little bit, because right now it really lacks the the emotional connection of Bran and Bloodraven, which is a lot more interesting right now than Quave and Danny. Right now, Quave is just kind of a trope. Um, so if Danny were to get a glass candle and start delving into magic more um you could see her relationship with Quaithe deepen and then this backstory maybe could even come into play here but I'm just yeah, you know
0: I agree because like if Quaith is gonna if this connection is there there will there should be some clues in you know the next time we see Quaith uh, I imagine like the language will be written a certain way if there if there's a connection there George will. You know, complete it or give us more to work with. He um, will, and yeah. if not, then then maybe it wasn't meant to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk about his third voyage now. Of the nine voyages, uh, four through eight, we don't know anything about. Uh, so keep that in mind as we're moving forward here. Number three, however, we have a lot of detail on.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: here's another quote.
1: Oh, for the thousand islands. Yeah, what thousand islands. About?
0: Putting up on screen, and mm-hmm. here we go. Going to read this. Yeah.
1: The god-kings of Ib, before their fall, did succeed in conquering and colonizing a huge swath of northern Essos immediately south of Ib itself, a densely wooded region that had formerly been the home of a small, shy forest folk. Some say that the Ibanese extinguished this gentle race, whilst others believed that they went into hiding in the deeper woods or fled to other lands. The Dithraci still call the great forest along the northern coast the Kingdom of the Iphikevron, the name by which they knew the vanished forest dwellers. The fabled sea snake, Corlus Valerian, Lord of the Tides, was the first Westerosi to visit these woods. After his return from the Thousand Islands, he wrote of carved trees, haunted grottos, and strange silences. That Obviously, is, that's incredibly familiar to anyone who's read the series. Yeah, that is It's just it's of the Forest. Children of the Forest, yeah, it's like all straight up, place. just, yeah, all just like them. Whether there's some differences, I, I, I could believe it, depending on when they diverged, you know, there could be significant differences but essentially that's what they are.
0: Yeah, the co- they're at least, cousins, I guess. Yeah, at least
1: cousins, like Yeah, at least cousins, like you know, you you could see that they could be slightly different.
0: Carved trees, haunted grottoes, yeah, strange silences, all of that. What do you think, LML? This is this is very cool. Sea Snake must have been he probably made the connection too of he- hearing about the old gods and you know, he went north to Hardhome and Eastwatch and all that, so.
2: Yeah, you start to wonder if Sea Snake is like Maybe in the cults of starry wisdom or the Illuminati or something. He's going to a lot of magical places here. I mean, I'm just, I'm just kind of <laughs> tinfoiling, obviously to have, I'm having fun, but it, yeah, it is. It's interesting. Uh, it's probably just George using the sea snake as uh, exposition. Like, there's only one or two people that have ever been to some of these places, so. If you need, if George needs to talk about the if a Kevron, then this is a convenient way to do it. There's probably no yeah. important thing for Corliss Velaryon, the fact that he goes here. But I don't know. I do wonder. Um, his son, quote unquote, or possibly you know, uh, grandson, Adam Velaryon, goes to the Isle of Faces on his dragon before yeah. going to Tumbleton. So there is kind of this. Idea of these of these Valerians going to these interesting places. I actually think that's because of symbolism. Uh, the seahorse and the Valerian ships are are con- uh, vehicles for a lot of Green Seer symbolism, which is too complicated for me to even try to explain right now. But there's a lot of there's a lot of Green Seer stuff going on, and so that's why I think they're going to places like Lang and uh, th- you know this Kevron forest. But let me drop a little something else on you here. So uh, they're called some say that the um, a densely wooded vanished forest dwellers, they were called um, the Woods Walkers. Is that in this paragraph or is that a, another paragraph? It's not paragraph. in this paragraph but, paragraph, but they
1: are yeah. called that, yes.
2: So what's interesting is they sound like children of the forest, but Woods Walkers sounds like the White Walkers because the full name for the White Walkers is White Walkers of the Wood. So even mm. in this description of the Eiffel Kevron, George is dropping us clint, uh, clues that the White Walkers are related to the Children of the Forest.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's that, that the part of the quote that says, or fled to other lands, which ah. makes sense uh, that they could have moved to Westeros. Or, you know, this could have been, this, this. would well, this not could have been. It was when Westeros and Essos were connected uh, by the... Maybe they stowed the away in Sea
2: Snake's hold, and then when <laughs> they went to hard home. let's keep going
0: (laughs) that's good I also want to point out the uh, like it's your not point out but refer to your your comment about uh, Adam Valerian going to Isle of Faces which is just kind of odd like why would he go like where did he get the idea to go there in the first place Uh, so and I like that drawing the line to that to this and seeing that yeah there's some at least some Valerian connection to that you never know maybe Corley's told Adam something um, yeah
2: that, that actually is a very practical way of looking at it like why did this random Valerian dragon rider or bastard turned Valerian Dragon Rider think to fly to the friggin Isle of Faces which is normally protected by sorcery and fog and shit like that I mean it's kind of yeah, crazy
0: well, He's like, I know I'll go to the Isle of Faces well what gave him that idea <laughs> like why where did that come
2: from like where was the
0: impetus for that
2: so yeah maybe yeah. you could picture Corliss. You know, telling stories to his his new his newfound, recognized and legitimized uh, children or grandchildren, Alan and Adam, yeah. and yeah, maybe uh maybe they did hear about the Efekhveron or some of these other magical places like Lang and Ashai, and it at least nurtured a curiosity and a knowledge that magic is real. Perhaps you know he probably wasn't a magic skeptic after all these voyages.
0: No, I wouldn't think so. And you wonder, too, just referring to the dragon, you know, this has uh, come so much later in his life. But what well, he knew about dragons from his travels and his readings and, and everything. And he might know a few things that even the Targaryens had known or, or don't, didn't know or had forgotten. Because there is a lot of evidence that the Targaryens didn't carry all their dragon knowledge with them. You know, they didn't have horns anymore, things like that. So, and the way they treated eggs differently and all that. So, uh, yeah, let's move on. We have um, a map for, of Nefir which is uh, another really cool creepy place. It is a map
1: place. that has oh, yeah. and, Not just know, Nefer and you know the kingdom of and on it obviously.
2: Nefer, home of Neferion, one of the five names for Azora High. <laughs> yeah. So we have another uh, very cool quote here. Alright, so beyond the Ibish coastlands and forests of the Iphikevron, the foothills of the Bones rise up out of the grasslands, and farther east the mountains themselves march down to meet the sea. Even from miles out into the Shivering Sea, the great northern peaks, with their icy crowns and jagged spires, seem to split the very air. Krazad Zaska, the Dothraki call the northernmost of the Bones, the White Mountains. Beyond them lies another world, one that very few Westerosi has ever visited. Those who have come this far, like Lomus Longstrider, have come by land through the mountain passes, or by way of the warm southern waters and the jade gates. Through the eastern waters of the—I'm sorry. Though the eastern waters of the Shivering Sea are as rich as those of the west, few come to fish them save the Ibanees themselves, for beyond the bones are found the lands of the nomadic Jogos Nye, a savage race of mounted warriors with no ships and no interest in the sea. Translation, no interest in money. (laughs) 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 Big
1: difference there.
2: (laughs) Whalers from the port of Ibn regularly hunt Leviathan Sound, where those great beasts come to mate and birth their young. And they're talking about whales there. And Ibnese fishermen speak of vast schools of cod in the deeper waters, seals and walrus on the rocky islands to the north, and spider crabs and emperor crabs everywhere. But elsewise, these eastern seas are empty.
0: Yeah, so that's really cool. And you wonder, just if we talk about um, the description of some of these places, that Corlees maybe doesn't have – this is an area where he maybe doesn't have any sources to have explained what these places are to him. And I wonder – we're told that he's the first person to visit a lot of these places. I wonder if George is riffing a little bit off of our own history, uh, meaning U.S. history, where we're told that Columbus discovered the Americas, but – that's not really true. Uh, <laughs> no. Excepting the fact that people already lived here, so you don't discover a place people already lived, but Vikings certainly found it well before Columbus did. That's proven beyond a shadow of doubt these days. Um, yes, not even so the certain. first white guy. Yeah, not even the first white people, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you wonder if this little bit of that is is in place too. There might have been somebody that had come to some of these places well before the Sea Snake, but because he's so famous and he his he wrote everything down and because... He's uh, a powerful guy that his books would have been copied and, and all that um, and because he did so much trading and brought back so much wealth and so many other people were with him. More people to spread the story of being with him, whereas somebody who just went to these places and never wrote it down, like how would anybody even know? You know? Um, it wouldn't be caught up in, in history books if, if it was never written down in the first place. So I don't think we're meant to believe that literally he was the first Westerosi to go to some of these places, but rather the first person to record that, uh, or that we know of. Well, Let's continue with the quote here.
1: Still farther east lie the so-called Thousand Islands. Ibanese chart makers tell us that there are, in truth, fewer than 300 a seagirt scatter of bleak wind-swept rocks believed by some to be the last remnants of a drowned kingdom whose towns and towers were submerged beneath the rising seas many thousands of years ago only the boldest or the most desperate mariners, ever make landfall here. For the people of these islands, though few in number, are a queer folk, inimical to strangers, a hairless people with green-tinged skin who file the teeth of their females into sharp points and slice the foreskins from the members of their males. They speak no known tongue and are said to sacrifice sailors to their squamous, fish-headed gods, likenesses of whom rise from their stony shores, visible only when the tide recedes. Though surrounded by water on all sides, these islanders fear the sea so much that they will not set foot in the water, even under threat of death.
0: Probably means they don't ever leave either, for that reason, you wouldn't get into a ship. They're even more afraid of the sea than the Dothraki. Um,
2: so this is a really aggressive statement against male circumcision by George it Martin. Is, it <laughs>
1: Statement, and it also tells me now that I guess I should picture every man in Westeros and Essos in general as being uncircumcised, which probably makes sense, yeah. but I'd never thought about me it. Me neither.
0: So, but you're right. They all they Why they would they are. be circumcised? Yeah. <laughs> why, yeah. Why
2: would they? <laughs>
1: That's the real thing we need to be railing <laughs> against HBO for, against.
2: <laughs> but you know, uh, <clears throat> uh, kidding aside, this what's going on here is pretty obvious. Um, this is a case of the Squishers. Coming out of the sea and raping the ancestors of these people, and so it leaves them fish-like, but also terrified of the sea. And so it's basically a different way to go. This is just yet more proof that squishers and merlings are real. Um, we find fishy people in a few places. The Iron Islands have their legends about uh, you know merlings and squishers, and here mm-hmm. is like one of the best evidences of <clears throat> you know the the sea folk are always. Coming out of the sea to mate with humans. Sometimes yeah. it's nice, sometimes it's not nice, <laughs> but it's a very you consistent think that's, part. That, that's
1: specifically why they file the teeth of their their women. Like maybe they don't realize now that that's where that tradition comes from. but That they might have been doing it specifically to try to make turn them, off and like defend against. So they make
2: bite these men that came for them from the sea. Yeah, <laughs> and so they they have gods that look like you know squishers. Um, that are carved in stone, uh, but and so you almost wonder if, like in the past, maybe they were more powerful and more connected to their squisher, uh, you know, fathers, and now they're just like terrified of them. But something, something bad and Lovecraftian went on there, as you can see.
0: And uh, yeah, absolutely, super Lovecrafty. This reference, this, this is this is uh, very not even subtle <laughs> how much it is Lovecrafty.
2: Oh and in fact um cheesecloth is pointing out that the squishers are said to have yeah. sharp pointy teeth. Mm. So basically they're 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 filing their teeth so they look like they like, god, their squisher gods.
1: Like doesn't make exact sense to me like maybe it- with, with the idea that they were specifically changed by the squishers, squishers you have to say that okay, then now they're completely they're completely embracing it, and like, would they welcome it now if a squisher came? Would they be like,
2: well, no? It's it's like one of those things where they fear and worship at the same okay, time, okay. sort so of. So like,
1: but like, if it was like a squisher yeah. came and chose a woman, would would they be like, oh, she's so lucky, or would they still be? I you think know, they
2: would. It'd be like Craster,
0: more like okay, take yeah, it. but takes, Please leave yeah, the rest of us alone. Yeah, take a few of us. Is. As you.
2: Yeah, that's <laughs> probably something more like that. You could see them sacrificing to the squishers to keep them appeased, or something. The
0: offerings to the sea, very, uh, very old school. Instead of to the tree, offer it to the sea.
2: Squish, squish.
0: <laughs> so there's a lot of creepiness there, and you gotta wonder, like, Sea Snake would have had some things to write about these people, um, and he here's where the quote continues. Uh, I'll read this part. Even Corleus Valerian dared sail no farther east than the Thousand Islands. This was where the sea snake turned back on his great northern voyage. In truth, there was no reason for him to continue, save for his hunger to learn what lay beyond the next horizon. That seems like reason enough to me. Anyway. Even the fish taken from these eastern seas are oddly misshapen with a bitter, unpleasant taste, it is said. Only one port of note is to be found on the shivering sea east of the bones. Nefer, chief city of the kingdom of Nagai hemmed in by towering chalk cliffs and perpetually shrouded in fog. When seen from the harbor, Nefer appears to be no more than a small town, but it is said that nine-tenths of the city is beneath the ground. For that reason, travelers call Nefer the secret city. By any name, the city enjoys a sinister reputation as a haunt of necromancers and torturers. Okay, so LML, help me out here. This is something that's kind of confused me a little bit. Maybe you have an answer. Okay, the Nagai, the Jogos Nagai. How does the Jogos Nagai culture end in a city of necromancers and torturers
2: that to me is a little strange well no the nagai is not is not the jogos nai okay that's no a wonder. different yeah. that's <clears throat> yeah, a similar the, naming convention okay yeah. yeah it is so the the people it's it, it's a former kingdom called Nefer um, that's now shrunken down to one city. And the the reason why they're shrunken down probably is the Jogos Nai. Because the Jogos Nai make war on everybody else around them. Mm. Um, whether it's uh, Herkun, which they've already destroyed, essentially, or the Yitish, or anybody else. So <clears throat> that's that's the feeling that I get, is that part of the reason why Nefer is, is a former kingdom is probably due to those warlike Jogosnai. There's a lot of AI, I mean, even Ashai, Marahai, there's a lot of AI um, suffixes in that area.
0: Yeah, for sure, that's probably why I thought they were more related. <laughs> the, namings, the namings are very similar. Okay, well, that, that's a perfect explanation.
2: And I think the point of George making Nefer all twisted and horrible is because the only the only reason it's ever important is because it's one of the places that one of the names of Azor Ahai comes from. And when you look yeah. at all the places that the five Azor Ahai names come from, you start seeing a lot of dark magic, and it's one of the clues about who Azor Ahai really was, which is a bad guy.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, that's cool. So it definitely fits really well. And it's also just really cool. Of course, Nefer, it sounds
1: nefarious (laughs) it does (laughs) it does sound
0: nefarious (laughs) ding 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 this would have this is a remnant of something much larger uh, but there but less uh, more of a remnant than what we saw in the thousand islands where it seems like the those people are maybe even devolved from some greater civilization that has long fallen whereas this is there's still some hint of civilization here even though it's uh, pretty dark the quote continues. Uh back to you, Shea.
1: Back to me, okay. Beyond the guy are the forests of Masovi, a cold dark land of si- uh, shape-changers and demon hunters. Be- beyond Masovi, a man of what we- no man of Westeros can truly say. Certain septans have claimed the world ends east of Masovi, giving I keep want to say Masovi, Masovi. I, I didn't settle Not on sure. that before I said I it. Yeah. <laughs> um, Masovia like, is what I've always said. It. Yeah, like I feel like it should be more like the Russian saying. It but sounds I like know. yeah,
0: Russian. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, whatever, <laughs> giving way to a realm of mists, then a realm of darkness, and finally a realm of storm and chaos, where sea and sky become as one. Sailors and singers and other dreamers. Other dreamers (laughs) prefer to believe that the Shivering Sea goes on and on, unending, past the easternmost coasts of Essos, past islands and continents unknown, uncharted and undreamed of, where strange peoples worship strange gods beneath stranger stars. Wiser men suggest that somewhere beyond the waters that we know, east becomes west, and the Shivering Sea must surely join the Sunset Sea, if indeed the world is round. It may be so, or not. Until some new sea snake arises to sail beyond the sunrise, no man can know for certain.
0: That's really cool.
2: There's a little, I am no man going on there. <laughs> 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 yeah, that's right.
1: Yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> right. So-
1: I almost made a comment on that. I was like, A <laughs> woman.
0: So any thoughts on Masovi or any of those spots? Uh, that's This is, again, this is his third voyage of, only, of nine voyages to Esso. So he's gone all this way on
2: only his third voyage. So cool. Yeah, so I think he hit the end of profitability. Let's put it that way. Like, <laughs> after a certain, I mean, it's a long way. When you look at that map along the north there, it's a long way to the Thousand Islands. So at a certain point, you're like, well, do you want to keep going? Like, I don't know, the last places that we've been to, haven't been that great. I think it's maybe time to go home now. So the, <laughs> after that, he sailed here, <laughs> right? And then he started trying the Summer Sea and the Jade Sea, and that's where he really hit it big. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah. He just exhausted this sort of line of exploration. Uh, but it is, um, I got to go in about five minutes, Aziz.
0: One thing we wanted to keep you around, uh, wanted to make sure we got to hear from you on, is is this guessing portion of There's the episode. Oh thing. look, we have Koja we on have screen, rare, the very oh, rare appearance of Koja. Oh, that didn't last.
1: <laughs> no, see we wanted attention, but not to be on camera.
0: <laughs> she's a Summer Islander kitty, so we had to try to Come get her Koja you,
1: anyways, had to try.
0: So, voyages four through eight, my guess is that some of them were repeat voyages to just get more wealth the same way he got tons of wealth the first time, but there's a lot of places that he didn't go that he might have gone, that we could dream on. Uh, we mentioned Sothoryos. <laughs> we mentioned Sothoryos. The west coast of Sothoryos, or the east coast of Sothoryos, Basiliskiles, there's no mention, like you said earlier, there's no mention of him going there, and we can see why he would avoid it, because it's deadly, but maybe he did. Ulthos. We got a map of Ulthos right here. Uh-huh. We don't know of anyone ever going there, but it's right there near Ashai. And if he went to Ashai, maybe he went to Ulthos. However, it is explicitly stated that the sea snake never went as far as the Saffron Straits. So that definitely casts a shadow, a strong shadow on that theory. Now, Ulthos is kind of lined up with Ashai, so he could have gone there without going to the Saffron Straits, but it looks like a no. What do you think, LML? Any, uh, any thoughts on that? Those those trees look dark and scary. Yeah. They really do. Something up with those trees. It's a
2: darker jungle than anywhere else on the map. I I know. I just think here we see the difference between him and Alyssa Farman. Alyssa Farman's always trying to go further, go further, go further. And Sea Snake is like counting his money. At a certain point, he's like, yeah, "Let's go home." <laughs> <laughs> and Slaver's Bay would be
0: another possibility for a place he might have gone. We've got a map shot of that as well, but. Maybe he didn't bother because uh, the slave trade is, there's not as much money in the slave trade as there is in in these regular trade goods, um, setting aside the obvious ethical considerations. But um, yeah, it's just, uh, I don't think there's as much money in that. And slavery is not legal in Westeros anyway. So he would have to be selling slaves from slave city to slave city. What's that?
1: What year was it made illegal? I don't know. Yeah, it, I, it, I guess it was along it. with
0: the Andals. I mean, it was probably... Yeah, I
1: guess so. You know, yeah, I guess you're right. They were escaping specifically, like, we don't want to be part of this slavery.
0: Yeah, uh, so I guess it's just been kind of always... They've always yeah. been against it and just yeah, I it I always been so. sort of taboo. Uh, maybe not illegal, but ta- now it's illegal. Yeah, but it's before tab- it was just taboo. Yeah,
1: you would have pictured when they had all these hundreds of, you know, kingdoms and stuff like that. that yeah. Some people would be like, I'm having slaves. I don't care. I was never a slave. I don't have any reason not to have them. Yeah. yeah it was...
0: Other places he could have gone uh, besides Slaver's Bay. The other side of Westeros, you know, par- a parallel ice wolf attempt on the other side of the, the cold area. But there's no indication he did that since we here only did two voyages on the ice wolf. So it's kind of unlikely he tried to find a north, a different passage on the other side of the continent using the sea snake and not the ice wolf. Uh, north of Ib, what's up there? Um, south of the Summer Isles, what's down there? Uh, Nath, he would know that Nath is in a place you can stay very long, but maybe he, you know, he, given he was well-read, he could maybe know that you could stop there for a minute and get out before the butterflies get you. But that might be too risky. <laughs> um, any other places? Is there anything we didn't name as far as places he could go that we weren't able to...
1: Look no, I us. think
0: we've already I we've
1: mean, already explained it. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I don't think he has much reason to go very inland, you know.
2: Yeah. I considered. No, considered. Hmm. Sorry, Shea. And he's also got no reason to go anywhere where he doesn't know where there's going to be something on the other end. Like, he's not going to go striking out south of the Summer Isles, because why do that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he could I die. D- like yeah. He's t- <laughs> well,
1: yeah, not I I don't 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 into taking he's those
2: risks. He's not going to Sothorios. Yeah, I don't see
1: a reason for him to go to Norvos or, you know.
2: Mm-hmm. It makes sense. Yeah, he's going to places where he thinks he, he can make money uh, or where the Starry Wisdom cult wants him to go. Uh, a couple of <laughs> yeah right yeah right
0: <laughs> the hidden hand is guiding him right. Uh, super chats from Holly Waldron, uh, one of two. Based on your episode about the Great Empire of the Dawn and House Dane connection, do you all think Danny's mom could be a Shara with Brandon? And part two, John thinks he's a bastard Stark, but is actually a true Targaryen, and Danny thinks she's a true Targaryen, but is actually a bastard Stark. Yeah, I mean that the symmetry there is pretty cool, but the timelines do not support this this possibility at all.
2: Um, um
1: and the looks, to be honest with you, um, a Dane mixed with Brandon Stark does not Daenerys Targaryen make, realistically speaking. Like, I mean, there's maybe no silver in, hair there. Maybe like in our genetics, you could. It's maybe Paul, but like George doesn't write it like that, yeah. really. So, and it's still unlikely. Yeah, in general. I, uh, I, yeah, dark hair plus dark hair, even with one of them having violet eyes, is is a problem.
2: And we've been shown too many times that the dark hair overrides the the fair looks. Yeah. But so
1: I think that's the 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 one of the biggest issues.
2: Yeah. To be so I'd have to say it's a cool idea, but
0: no, I don't think so. I think it's I don't think it's supported. Um, so yeah, so LML has to go in a second. Let's finish this last voyage, and then we'll we'll say goodbye to you. And then after you, I go, actually have to go right, right now. Right now, okay. Let's I've, say uh, do your do your uh, tell everyone where to find you, and we'll catch you next time.
2: Uh, well, LuciferMeansLightbringer.com, LuciferMeansLightbringer Lucifer means website, and find me on Sundays at three Eastern doing the pregame live stream. We're gonna do our first pregame live stream this week, week early. Uh, get all the myth head predictions set up for the season, and then we'll be there. You know, uh, premiere day. Three Eastern, and then we'll also be doing the post game after the show. So, great, come check it out. Make sure you're subscribed to my YouTube channel. When I checked earlier today, I was just a couple of subscribers away from eleven thousand one (laughs) hundred and eleven. So, you could be the lucky one 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 subscriber. (laughs) One 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 one, one's older brother. One one and woundeg woundar woundeg wound woundar wound. wound. Cool. So that's it. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, yeah I'm at eleven one oh nine. so. Cool. All right, everybody, help him get there. And uh,
0: thanks for coming. Great insights. And we will talk to you during Game of Thrones season. Peace. Bye. All right. Okay, yeah, we're not done here. We've got uh, several more things to discuss. We have the ninth voyage, and we also have his settling down. We have some a little bit of, of, of stuff written about his, his when he's done with his uh, virg- voyages, and that includes some more artwork. So we're definitely going to get to that. Mm-hmm. So his ninth voyage, like I said, with the fourth through eighth voyages, all we have is this guesswork that we've just been through. And uh, the ninth voyages was another trip to Carth. Twenty ships loaded with gold. Carth buying spices, elephants, silk. Six of the ships didn't make it. The elephants died, but still vastly wealthy from the venture. My headcanon here is this is why Okenface made Face made a big deal out of And the elephant, don't forget the elephant, because (laughs) his uh, father-slash-grandfather was unable to bring elephants that he planned to bring. I wonder what his plans were with those elephants. Was he going to use them as weapons of war or...
1: He was going to build his own palace of ivory.
0: (laughs) That's right. <laughs> that is, he, it's in his own words that it was actually a palace of ivory, so it sounds like it's not an exaggeration, but damn, it's uh-huh. like a palace of ivory.
1: Well, yeah, Whoa. you can see on the screen this art from Drafter that shows the elephants being loaded onto the, the ships, obviously they didn't make it, but then you can see Corleus on his uh, driftwood crown, I will not say driftwood clown, as Aziz has said in the past.
0: <laughs> you mean driftwood throne?
1: Yes. <laughs> <You're> <laughs> yes, right. I have
0: said driftwood clown.
1: See, how I was just thinking about it. As I was saying it, I was like, all I could think about was when you said Driftwood Clown. <laughs> I was like, I'm not going to say it. And then I was like, of course.
0: <laughs> so he yes. took uh, a substantial amount of this money and built himself a new castle, which, of course, is not a cheap thing to do. And he didn't exactly go about uh, go about it using uh, budget construction materials either. Uh, so, Ashea, mm-hmm. please read this one for us.
1: Oh, all right. "'The seat of House Valerian was Castle Driftmark, "'a dark, grim place, always damp and often flooded. "'Lord Corlys raised a new castle on the far side of the island.' High Tide was built of the same pale stone as the Erie. Its slender towers, crowned with roofs of beaten silver that flashed in the sun, when the morning and evening tides rolled in. The castle was surrounded by the sea, connected to Driftmark proper only by a causeway.
0: So it sounds a little bit like a combination of with the Erie marble. It's like the Erie combined with River Run. Yeah, with a silver roof.
1: Yeah. Come it on. sounds like it was blinding <laughs> to look at out in the day. Like, yeah, like the, the 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 sea and the, the reflected of the silver. I just be like, ah, You may not
0: have thought of that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't polish. Well, the, the enemies roof. can never attack when it's sunny. Yeah, just blind them, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um To this new castle, Lord Corleus moved the ancient driftwood throne, a gift from the Merlin King, according to legend. The Sea Snake built ships as well. The royal fleet tripled in size during the years he served the old king as master of ships. Even after giving up that office, he continued to build, turning out merchantmen and trading galleys in place of warships. Beneath the dark, salt-stained walls of Castle Driftmark, three modest fishing villages grew together into a thriving town called Hull, for the rows of ship hulls that could always be seen below the castle. Along the island, near high tide, another village was transformed into Spice Town. its wharves and piers crowded with ships from the free cities and beyond. Sitting athwart the gullet, Driftmark was closer to the narrow sea than Duskendale or King's Landing, so Spicetown soon began to usurp much of the shipping that would elsewise have made for those ports, and House Valerian grew ever richer and more powerful.
0: Yes, this is what we were talking about earlier with him... Uh, the trickle down stuff and him building his island really big and creating opportunities for a lot of people and uh, just beginning more and more wealthy by making all the right moves and uh, you you got to figure some Adam uh, there was some animosity maybe from some of these other spots that were losing out on business because uh, this, the the ascendancy of House Valarian who were somewhat upstarts to the area you know like some of these houses have been in place for thousands of years and the valerians maybe or they're they're an ancient family but not ancient in this area because obviously they migrated from Valyria. uh the driftwood throne really cool um evocative image there i'm glad we got that included mm-hmm. in Drafter G's art very good shot there um mm-hmm. and the city the, the town of hull named for its rows of ships always being built, and then the name of Spice Town, that is also very straightforward, a town where there's a lot of spices being traded, which makes sense. That would make it really rich, given what we discussed about how expensive spices are, and if Corlys had arranged trade routes for some of these places he went, then the spice would flow. Hey, it's it's a Dune reference.
1: Spice must flow.
0: So we have, um, part of his settling down is marrying Rhaenys in AC90. Yeah, you can see this art again. yeah. Now, we know he was an ambitious guy. So this marriage had definitely some things uh beyond just uh, marrying this awesome Targaryen princess. There's more to it than that. She insisted on arriving to their marriage to their wedding on Maelys the Red Queen. That is a that's pretty badass. <laughs> yeah. It's like you may have ships and fleets and wealth, but you won't have this. <laughs> We're not starting off our, uh, our 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 marriage on unequal footing. And she gets pregnant in 92, and Amon dies. That's the heir to the throne, dying in 92, and Rainies is passed over for Balon. And this is when, in that quote, it's referenced that that Corlys uh, left the office of Master of Ships. Yeah, because they're this
1: fools. Is why. They're damn, fools. damn fools. You could have Raines and Corlys Valerian as king and queen. Like all this civil unrest, just hardly anything. A
0: big part of our Dance yeah. of the Dragons coverage is talking about what a big mistake this was. Because yeah, you don't. As we just just went took great lengths to show y'all the Sea Snake was incredibly powerful, and by Jerry's passing over Raines he pissed off the sea snake and that oh. that would have a huge ripple effect not just on the sea snake but on and other factions House
1: Valerian in general yeah. for sure
0: set up he jerys great king but he did a lot to set up the dance of the dragons his descendants didn't just put the hit the accelerator on that but <laughs> but he did start it um so and then lena is the one who was born of that of uh that first child born of Corlys and Rhaenys, and she she was passed over as well. And then Lenore was born, and he was passed over. So again, that's kind of outside the scope of this episode, but I just wanted to throw it out there so we know, uh, just to kind of set the table for for our dance coverage. Let's talk a little bit more about High Tide. We've got this awesome shot yeah. of it, so cool looking. You can really get the uh, the sense of what I meant when I said it's a bit like River Run. When the tide comes in, it's uh, cut off from the mainland except for a narrow causeway, which would make it super super hard to assault.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: However,
1: I like the little yeah. detail of Melee's, you assume. Up 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 there, flying.
0: Yeah, that's so cool. Yeah. Little little dragon touch is nice. We don't know exactly when it was built, but it was prior to 106. That's we know that much because it was there. It existed in 106, so it had to have been built before that. Uh that Slender, that quote about Slender Towers crowned with roofs of shining silver. I know I already commented on that, yeah. but damn, that is so baller. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, and you can
1: also see a map shot just so you can see the location of Driftmark in relation to Dragonstone and yeah. whatnot.
0: And another factor in him building High Tide was that the uh, ancestral seat built prior uh, when the Valerians first came to Driftmark was, quote, damp and crowded. And you hear that in a few other castles. Someone made a new castle because the other one was damp and uh, that causes like... Health issues. I believe uh, the Harlaws did the same thing, if I remember correctly. So, the one of the purposes of the of this place was not only house the Driftwood Throne, but to house all these other treasures that he accumulated. It was almost like a like a safe, <laughs> like a you know, he needed a better vault to hold all his insane wealth. As we talked earlier, all these people coming to migrate there, all these villages building up, this was a source of manpower, and well. Thorough art is thorough. Drafter G has given us an art of Valerian soldiers, and I love the detail here. You got the spear, you got the shield, you got some of the sigil in there.
1: Cool kind of scaledish, I yeah. don't know, uh, armor at the top. You know, I don't know. It, it's it's a little nautical looking. Like yeah, the spears and all
0: light armor. Yeah, light armor. It very. It was very very a good take on how I think it would look because it's that's very true. You don't. Only weirdos like Victorian wear heavy armor on ships. Most of them are like Davos, who wear light armor. And the only heavy thing is their helmet, which they can just pop right off if they fall in the water. So he's lord of those guys now. Those are his men. And uh, he wants to have lots of them. Well, since we're not covering his politics and his his time as a politician and leader and general and all that, this is about where the coverage ends because once he's built his castle, once he's established himself, once he's got his princess, his queen who never was, a dragon, a son riding a dragon, his his life is a much, much different thing. So that's why we're covering it separately. So this is where we're going to end things today. But I do want to throw, to I do have a list of, of uh, a summary of his life that includes some things during this political War era of his latter life just to give a nice Summary of how amazing he was. Okay Married a dragon rider. He's the first valerian to have a valerian son ride a dragon because before it was Targaryens, right? He was he crowned a king of the Stepstones That's Daemon Targaryen and he poisoned another Aegon the second The following titles of were all his sir Lord of the tides Lord Regent hand of the Queen Master of Ships, Master of Driftmark, Blacks and the Greens, Valerian and Valerian. So he fought for both the Blacks and the Greens and the Valerian and he was Valerian. But he wasn't a guy that just switched sides due to opportunism. Mm-hmm. He was always focused on peace. So his name, Sea Snake, is a bit misleading. Um, and he differs from some of those. We we talked a lot about in this episode how he differs from a lot of the other explorer types like Lomis and... And uh, even his own grandson/slash son, Alan. Mm-hmm. But uh, I just want to remind you all of that that he's very different. And eventually, Rainy marries back into her grandmother's family, which is, f- you know, kind of comes full circle with that all, uh, hmm. <laughs> with that whole thing. Because when she's marrying into, when she marries Coralise, well, Coralise is related to uh, other people that she's related to. So it's you know more of this everyone's related business. We have um. A note from Mr. Begavita, who is the real-life parallel to Corleese. I don't know. I
1: think we want to ask that of our listeners. Comment, yeah, if you guys have let a... Let us know who you think.
0: Yeah, if you have a suggestion, yeah, definitely like Ashea said. Let us know. Um, there's definitely some interesting explorer figures who have maybe parts of him. Uh, but I don't know one that's a great one-to-one relationship. So that's something for y'all to maybe hit us with if you have one. If, you, if, if anyone gets us a good one, then we will let y'all know. And we will post that in a later episode so let us do our thanks and outro thank you everybody for coming it's uh sorry we couldn't get this done last week <laughs> but uh we will be
1: off next week that's right but we will have a live stream that Saturday that Saturday the 13th and I think you said 2 p.m. Eastern right? that's right
0: 2 p.m. Eastern which and would so be we'll post 6 the GMT for that
1: pretty soon because we don't have a stream before then
0: yep 7 GMT now there's, there is a chance we do another stream before that and that will be if there's another trailer we got some new teasers, but that's not really enough to do a full episode on. But if there's a full new trailer or a substantial amount of new footage, we will do an episode prior to Saturday the 13th. But otherwise, that's our next live stream, Saturday the 13th. and then we're, then we're full in Game of Thrones mode for six weeks. And uh, then we'll let you all know what comes after that. So let's say thanks to a few people. Do our patron mm-hmm. shout-outs. Thanks uh, to Shea, of course. Thanks to sure. Michael Klarfeld. Thanks big, to
1: Drafterg. Big thanks to G Yes, as we said, go follow him on Twitter and Instagram, at Drafterg, and uh, we hope to get more art from him in the future, and we will certainly be linking to um, his online store so you can buy a print. I know I sure want a print of that.
0: Yeah, I uh, I do too, and we will certainly be spreading the word as we get more information and helps. Uh, let you all find Uh, this whenever wherever it can be found okay Um, and also thanks to LML for being a part of this episode Um, very helpful no screw him he
1: left early (laughs) (laughs) that's why we
0: wanted to get we wanted to have him leave so we could make fun of him once he left (laughs) okay thanks to our other patrons thanks to Mark of House Joseph the Snow and Winterfell a writer of Maslacartha a white dragon with green scales horns wings and talons Jinx of House Lear is Green Queen of the Rainwood, rumored daughter of a woods witch, rider of Eurogenia, sylphic albino dragon with amethyst eyes and opalescent wings. The mysterious BR is Hand of the King. The Smiling Wolf is Lord Stephen Stark of the Broken Tower, soldier, scholar, philosopher, diplomat, Hand of Queen who who is known as the best. Mm-hmm. Lord Jim the Fortuitous of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire blog is Warden of the West, another person that we'll be seeing at Ice and Fire Con. Mm. Lord George Stormsville the Cunning, Lord of the Chillyad, and Warden of the East. Kebeth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Defender of the Old Gods, and Warden of the North. I believe that's another person we'll be seeing at Ice and Fire. Oh yeah, he goes
1: to a lot of those. Yeah.
0: Lady Kelly McMath of Covington, Lady of the Villa Hills of Crescent Springs, is Warden of the South. Lord James Tuttle is King of the Stepstones and the Narrow Sea, Commander of the Royal Fleet, consisting of the Narrow Fleet led by flagship Caraxes, and the Bloodstone Fleet led by flagship Prince Damon. We also have a new King Beyond the Wall. He was one of our lords, but he has set aside his seat. Formerly known as uh, Lord Sidney Jesse the Fallborn, Lord of Blue Spring, he has now become the King Beyond the Wall, and he has uh, celebrated his ascendancy over the free folk by having himself forged a blade of pure dragon glass that is as sharp as it sounds. And you do not want to face him with that. Also, thanks to our small council, the Lord Daniel of the Sneaky Russian is Master of Ships, Grand Maester Via James; Lord Benjamin of House Hornwood is Master of Laws, Lord Fabian Flowers is the Bastard of Greenshield, Master of Coin, and Lord Johan of House Orcos is called Shadowhawk, Master of Whisperers. Our lords and ladies in their castles include Lady Dyerlis of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron, Lord Dan of the Red Mountains and Castle Great Bell is Breaker of the Second Stone, Lord Skip of the Velt is Lord of Castle Ganges, Gregor the Toasty is Lord of the Breadford. Alicia Everlasting of the Greenblood is Lady of Desert Rose. Lord Ryan of Castle Stonegate is Guardian of the Rocky Mountain Pass. Lord Garen de Havilland is of Devil's Hand Keep. Ashlyn Winter is the Hawke's Eye, Lady of Castle Skyfall. Lady Mikkel of Moonacre is Leader of the Werewood Protectorate Alliance. Lord of the Halls of Castle Kilcrest is Wielder of the Valyrian Steel Machete Everglazed. Lord Alistair Whittaker is Lord of the Donhold. Lord Bemi Bunny is Guardian Ranger of the Hidden Hundred Acre Weirwood, dual Wielder of the Valyrian, Short Swords, Glorious Morning, and Little Light Wise, Sharpshooter of the Werewood and Ironwood, Laminated Longbow, Todd Von Ovid, Brian the Defender is Lord of the Spearfort and the Freelands, Last Scion of Clan Macaulay, Strength and Courage. The Bastard of the Wolfswood is First Forester of the Old Gods, Swordhouse Iron Weirwood, Listen for the silence. Connor the Dungeon Master is Lord of Catamount Keep and Guardian of the Smoky Mountain Pass, Lady Baelish is Dark Widow of Harrenhal, Neves the Twin Hearted is a suspected skin changer and holder of Castle Carahel. Sir Valentin of House of Jen is creator of the Free Game of Thrones Predictions, a futures market. Uh, Lady Liana Kelly is of Wolf Island and Protectress of the Steelhold. Casey Stark is of House Acres. Lady Kay of House Archer is Lady of Earth Hall, Huntress of the Wolf's Wood, and Guardian of Maddie Squirrel's Bane, the mighty Direweenie. Lady Raywin of House Dilsdane is the Star Spear. And Peter Rivers, the Pale Dragon, is heir to Blood Raven. Also, thanks to King's Justice Sir Troy, the steady wielder of the Valerian steel blade, fate.
1: And thanks to the Queen's High Council, led by uh, well, not led, <laughs> uh, with Bloody Ben Blackwood, Master of Whisperers, Rebea Star Eyes, Lady of Waves, and Mistress of Ships, Captain of the Iron Shadow Cat. In the Shadows we bear our claws. Laura of House Brandos is Master of Coin, Grand Maester Elizabeth. Middle daughter of Lyanna Mormont, first lady to forge both the silver and Valyrian steel link, and Dennis of Lazar, Embar Perzis, former head of the sell-sale company, the fiery shepherds, master of wands.
0: Yeah, the Embar Perzis is High Valyrian for fire of the sea.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Pretty cool, I like that, that name cool. a lot. Uh, our King's Guard is led by Lord Commander Miriamar and backed up by Sir Dolores D, longest-tenured white sword. Willa uh, Crow's Bane, Guardian of White Tree, First Lady of the Free Folk Sir Dean the White, Knight of the Black Star Sir Jord of House Pepsi, called the Beverage Knight Gregor Snow, called Snow Bear, a Bastard of Winterfell
1: Jord of House Pepsi, better not come to Atlanta
0: Yeah, this is coke country
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, The Queen's Guard is led by Lord Captain Commander Hema Helmuth, the Sellsword Sentinel It has Alexander of House Atreides from the Seat of Dune I must not fear, fear is the mind killer Becca the Bard, Songbird of the North, Michonne the Melodia, Star of Old Town, Minds Over Masters, Ser Rambo, Knight of House Ganon, First Blood, Ser Leon of House Walker, Wielder of the Twin Valerian Steel Blades, Fire and Ice, and the Werewood Bow, Rain. And last but not least, Amber the Adamant, the Knight of the Mist, and Mother of Squids.
0: <laughs> Lord Commander George the Golden leads the Beard Guard, backed up by Sir Joshua Oakhart, the White Oak, Lady Rita of the Coppermane, the Unbound, Dance the Fervor, Sir Jeff, Warden of the AC, Wielder of Triad, the Multifaceted ble- Beard, Beard, Beard of Platinum, Red and Brown, Stay Frost. Sir Tim Corgyle is Mad Boy of the Western Desert, and Queen Helena von Lanstein is partying like it's 1999 since 1980-something. A kingdom for a drink. And finally, our History of Westeros and Night's Watch is led by... Lord Commander Benjamin the Silent Giant, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Greatsword, Winter's Kiss. And he is backed up by First Builder Megor Snow, a.k.a. Megor the Cool, the fire in the snow. <laughs>
1: Not like
0: that. Yeah, it's very cool. First Steward... Very sir- cool. <laughs> I didn't even mean to do that. I pun in my sleep, apparently. You're First, awake. Mm, whoa, I am awake. First Steward, Sir Jurion of the Torrentine, called Pale Wind. And First Ranger, Sir Sorstelica of House Gramercy. Nice uh, audio file reference there. Okay, everybody, thanks again. Thanks to Michael Clarfeld again. Thanks to Drafter G again. Thanks to LML again. And we will see thanks you guys. Thanks to
1: Aziz f- for the first time ever.
0: <laughs> thanks to me. Okay. Thanks to uh, HP Lovecraft and Pod City and all of y'all who came to watch and or listen today. We will see you next time. Well, our will reread us.